I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. And you're listening to Deep Cut. Talking 21. We are back. Finally. Hello, listeners. Welcome. On Deep Cut, we usually compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. But once a year on a very special time of year, Chinese New Year apparently this time. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Happy New Year. We discussed the movies, films, and motion pictures of yesteryear. So here's how this is going to work. We're going to build our conversation through some of our favorite 2021 pictures, some movies that we can't not talk about, and then land each of our top three movies of the year. We'll also talk about the TV of 2021 as a little dessert, a little a little treat for you all. Yum yum. To see what we talk about when, check the episode description, which will have time codes for each movie that we go into. Some of the movies from 2021 were by directors that we have already covered on the show. So we'll also be talking about these movies like Spencer, Matrix Resurrections, Tragedy of Macbeth, maybe, maybe Velvet Underground <laughs> in separate one-off episodes. No guarantees or promises, but at least two of those are happening. Gun to my head, force me to watch a Shakespeare adaptation. Uh, I, 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 I was saying maybe shoot me. <laughs> we didn't sign anything, okay? So first of all, let's get a bird's eye view what kind of year was 2021 for movies? Middling. <laughs> <laughs> it's extremely middling for me. I mean, I'm looking at all the critical buzz right now and everyone's talking about how 2021 is a return to form or like a great year for movies compared to 2020. I don't see it. For reference, I only gave one movie five stars for 2021. Who's <laughs> You're going to have to wait to find out which one. And for the record, I watched... 72 2021 releases supposedly oh God. some of those were maybe for some people 2020 releases but yeah of the 72 i only gave a single five star rating on letterbox which really surprised me and i found myself liking movies from directors that i have been following and liked but not loving them as much as i hoped maybe it's not that the movies were bad maybe my expectations have gone up too much or maybe i was hoping for straight masterpieces from everyone which is <laughs> not always possible but yeah or maybe my i've just become more of a nitpicker i don't know <laughs> which i think kind of makes sense because i think my my way of looking at films has kind of crystallized in the last year maybe because of deep cut how so i figured out what a five-star movie is for me Ooh. and what four stars is and then i kind of have a better sense of how to rate a movie now in terms of the way that I look at the numbers because I usually only rate on a 1 to 5 scale with no half stars which makes it cleaner for me so then I have to make a very big decision between 4 or 5 which is like a world of difference but usually for me a 5 star movie is something that I undeniably love like there was nothing wrong with it mm. and even if there is something wrong with it that someone else is, is seeing I have a reason for why I don't care <laughs> yeah <laughs> and why I think this is actually perfect for me at least. Yeah. And four stars are just good movies. And then most things just fall in this three star bucket, which is just like <laughs> well that's filling up now. <laughs> ben notoriously has a letterbox description just says I don't do half stars. And that's it. That's the end of the debate on Ben's end. I don't know why, but I made a decision when I started Letterboxd. I wanted to commit to having kind of a feeling about a film. Mm. I always find that a half star is kind of the, a very non-committal space. <laughs> that is, to me, a little meaningless. <laughs> so it's like, if it's five stars, it's good. It's good. That's it. 
Well, for those of us who like to overthink, half stars are the way. Yes, I agree. <laughs> saying that you figured out your criteria for a five-star movie is like saying that you found the meaning of life. <laughs> or like, I found the perfect pancake recipe. <laughs> <laughs> you then can go on to make your own five-star movie. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if Ben watched 72, I did the opposite and watched 27. <laughs> oh! Nice. <laughs> it's almost perfect. Five stars. <laughs> I think I would agree that the very big buzzed about releases, I felt a little bit underwhelmed by. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it felt like we were trying to make 2021 happen. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a fun year. It did sort of happen. Yeah. But it was... Pretty much just 2020. <laughs> yeah. But I will say that if you looked in the right corners, there were some genuine, really great movies out there. Yes. I'm sort of in the middle. I watched 39 2021 releases as of today. I did enjoy quite a lot of movies this year, but it did feel like good movies were being like drip fed to us mm. or being shoved down our throats, shoved down our throats <laughs> or being held back from us for a future later release. And because the pandemic started start of 2020, you would assume most of these films were either filmed right before the pandemic or during the pandemic. There's a staggering there where productions were shut down for a long time and people just didn't really make things for a while. So mm -hmm. I also yeah. feel like that was a big reason that contributed to the lack of really high quality movies this year. But that being said, I did enjoy a lot of movies this year. And I also made it a point to sort of discover some directors that had new releases this year. Mm. And watching a few prior films before watching their new releases was very, very, very satisfying to me. And I realized I have some new favorite working directors. Oh, nice. Yeah. Will you be telling us some of these? That I'll get to okay, later. Yes, yes, I will, yes, I will be talking about it later. Right. I, I like, <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. That's it. <laughs> End of episode. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your time. In 2022, Deep Cut learns the art of suspense. <laughs> Not giving away too much, guys. We won't even talk about any specific movies this episode. We're just going to talk about the, <laughs> the landscape. You have to guess what we're talking about. So let's get into some of the movies that we enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Yes. Some honorable mentions. Okay. My first honorable mention is a movie from a director that I have grown to love the past few years. And I've talked about this director multiple times on this podcast, Hong Sang-soo. <laughs> we have mentioned him <laughs> so many times. As many times as the number of films he has made. Probably. <laughs> At this point, we're basically threatening to cover him on the show. I know, I know. And he had two really solid releases this year introduction and in front of your face which is the movie that's on my honorable mentions list this time around and in front of your face follows an actress or a former actress with something to hide that returns back to Seoul from from living in in the states for a long time the, the movie sort of split between her spending time with her sister and then the second half is her having a meeting with a potential director Hong always does these half movie structural splits. I think this one was, although more straightforward than his usual way of splitting his movies, I think, I guess it was just clearer in the way that I saw what he was trying to do in this movie and it worked very well for me. I did put in my notes that this is Hong entering his late era. I think this year, a lot of directors are entering to, into his late era. And I think mm. what characterizes late era Hong is he's boiling his movie down to like the very basics. Hong has lost so much funding or <laughs> apparently has lost so much funding for his movies <laughs> that he has started shooting all of his movies. No way. Wow. That's why... <laughs> 
his movies did already used to look very like lo-fi but these past couple of years they have like started really 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 looking lo-fi he's gonna start shooting on his phone soon at this exactly point. <laughs> exactly because the way that hong makes his movies he churns them out so fast his shoots are like maybe two weeks at most oh my god he probably shoots a scene a day because they're really elongated scenes that usually happen in one or two shots. But to boil it down, I really love this Hong movie and I can't wait to see what he does next year because he already has one movie that's supposed to be releasing at Berlin next month. <laughs> I saw in front of your face. I thought it was okay. I'm still waiting for another woman who ran <laughs> to kind of like tip me over the scales. But I saw what he was doing in front of your face, but it was just not, I think, as emotionally engaging as I hoped it could have been to kind of dig his fingers into me. Mm. Although there is going to be a film we're going to be talking about later on, which I'm going to make a case for why the technical quality of your film really doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> <laughs> because especially for the kinds of films that Hong is making, where it's about stories and characters in pretty like mundane situations. Yeah. The character and the things they're talking about that's what's most important the conversations are the highlights yeah and you don't really need to film them look that good to actually make it work no <laughs> he's putting his focus where it matters for him and that's what i really admire or else he can't make two films a year yeah <laughs> first film i'm going to talk about my honorable mentions list is something i saw really early on in 2021 a movie called the disciple i believe it is on netflix in most regions maybe even all regions it is directed by chaitanya tamhani it's his second feature I saw Tamhani's first feature, Court, which might also be on Netflix, depending on your regions, back in 2014, which was incredible. It was one of the best films I saw that year, and it was his debut feature. The Disciple is a slow burn, kind of an art film about a young man who's really into uh, this style of Indian music. I cannot tell you what it is because I don't remember it and what the genre is, but it requires a certain kind of uh, vocalizing when they're singing and then there's also instrumentation alongside it and he's really obsessed with this style of music and he has a guru that he's attached to and it's a film about following your dreams and what that means and like whether your talents match the dreams that you have and the ambitions that you have people have compared it to whiplash but of course this is a much slower paced version of whiplash Hmm. I can also compare it to another 2021 release, The Novice, which you can kind of see there, The Novice and The Disciple. <laughs> They're essentially the same movie <laughs> with very, very different styles of filmmaking. <clears throat> yeah, they have kind of the same obsessions and the characters also kind of have the same obsessions. And I really recommend it because I think it is so laser focused on its idea and it has all these scenes of the music that kind of play out like a musical with no lyrics mm -hmm. where the music plays out the emotional arc of the character as he's trying to get better at his craft that sounds great it's a tough one to recommend but i would say seek it out because it's one of those kind of under the radar things and because it was bought up on netflix it means the marketing is dead <laughs> which is such a shame uh i'm still excited for tom Hardy's next feature now and i think he's still a one to watch for sure he studied with Quaron on uh, the making of Roma, right? Ah, yes, he did. Yeah, he was like an apprentice or something on the making of Roma. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's a very intelligent filmmaker. And you can see from his first feature, Court, which I also very highly recommend, which is kind of a Altman-esque view of the Indian justice system, mm. but also about music as well. Wow. Um, and about protest. Would you say that his movies are Quaron-esque? No, not at all. <laughs> Actually, I, I don't know what hmm. a Quaranus movie is, but I think he is a very subdued filmmaker, mm. but very mm. strong in what he's doing within those bounds that he creates for himself. Mm. Very exciting. 
My first honorable mention is a debut feature, so another very fresh filmmaker, Andreas Fontana, Swiss filmmaker, with his debut, Azor. I know this was one that Ben did not love this year, but I want to make a case for it. And the first thing I'll say off the bat is that it scratches the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy itch. I understand. <laughs> so if you listen to our episode on Thomas Alfredson and you like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy as much as I do, seek this one out for sure. Swiss private banker Ivan arrives in Argentina in 1980 during the military dictatorship's state-sponsored terrorism and explores what his professional partner was up to before that guy's disappearance. And it seems like Ivan may be in danger the further he digs for information, but I'll just say that the movie is not what it seems to be posing as aesthetically and narratively. While watching, I kept on having the thought, this is how it happens. <laughs> and I'll leave it at that because this is a movie that I think is best experienced without spoilers. It's one of the best directorial debuts I've seen, hands down. I think it's really smartly told and what it reveals itself to be is pretty shocking and upsetting. I didn't hate this movie. I thought it was good. Honestly, it was problems that I'm just like too dumb for this movie. <laughs> like it's a little obtuse and like having a sense of the political landscape yeah. of the place that it's set in helps a lot. Mm -hmm. And I was going in dumb and ignorant. <laughs> hmm. And I think because of that, it was hard to grasp what was going on. And but I can understand how it can really work on that cerebral level. But for me, I think at least the day that I was watching, I was definitely not in the mood for Cerebral. Mm -hmm. And like trying to grasp at it was so difficult because it's such a, I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's like a extremely pretty object I can't see. Mm -hmm. It's too bright for me. Mm. I'm yeah. too dim. No. <laughs> oh, Ben. <laughs> anyway. As you say that, it makes me think about studying abroad in Argentina. Back in 2016, I went over the summer. I do have a little bit of knowledge about that period of Argentinian history. Maybe it reminds me a little bit of the feeling of being from a country that perpetrated a lot of wrongdoing mm. in Argentina visiting mm -hmm. because other countries like Switzerland, the United States are certainly responsible for what happened in the 80s in Argentina. Mm. And this movie is very cognizant of that and delivers that message really responsibly and kind of sneakily. Mm. I, I liked what was going on here and I'm going to revisit it for sure with more knowledge of the ending. Honestly, as a first-time feature, it's like maybe one of the most mature first-time features that I've seen. Yeah. Because, I mean, the subject matter is so difficult. Mm -hmm. And to kind of want to tackle this as a first-time feature is actually insane. Did you watch the interview with the director that they had on movie? Oh, no, I didn't catch that. He mentions that this film was actually based off a diary he found from his grandfather. Oh, wow. No. His grandfather or something was like a private banker and he had all these like information in his journals. And that was kind of like the inspiration for the film. I'm not sure if it was technically the same setting or location, but that's kind of the little inspiration he had for the film, which I found really crazy. It's like, what kind of life do you have? But okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, just another question. You know, at a time when we're thinking about the privilege that it takes to make a movie, mm. right. how do you grapple with your own family history's involvement in a violent crime against humanity? Mm. Yeah, That's pretty tricky. And, and yeah, it makes me think of the word mature that you're using, Ben. Mm. All right, moving on. Okay. Wilson, your pick. Moving on to my second pick. 2021 was the year that I decided to come clean and just say that I really like Wes Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> 
I really, really, really love The French Dispatch. I saw it twice in theaters. Like, that's how much I fucking love this movie. Wow. <laughs> Damn. The first time I watched it, I thought it was, like, a little fluke. I was feeling really shitty that day. And then I, like, watched it, and it, it's just so joyous. And the way that Anderson and his cinematographer, Robert D. Yeoman, block and frame the shots, and the whole visual and oral rhythm of the films just put me in such a good emotional space. Hmm. Now that Wes Anderson has sort of also entered into his late phase, <laughs> I'm really just placing these labels on these directors, whether they like them You're or just not. Just calling them old. <laughs> <laughs> they went to the old beach. But I think if you gain a certain level of notoriety, right, and you've made a certain amount of films, you start like culling down the big ideas mm. of the big movies that you, you want to make, your dream movies, right? Mm. So then what's left? What are you after in your filmmaking? So that comes down to your own stylistic, aesthetic concerns. And that's very priority one for Wes Anderson. Hmm. Also priority when it comes to types of plots and types of stories. The French Dispatch, which is sort of like the Grand Budapest Hotel in that it focuses on a few different... Well, I guess the Grand Budapest Hotel is more linked, but the French Dispatch focuses on a few different writers and their stories for the last issue of a magazine by the same name as the, the movie. The variety in terms of each story and also how it reflects on the writer's personalities was really cool. And having all these like hard-hitting actors like Francis McDormand, Benicio Del Toro, Adrian Brody, all in Wes Anderson movie together was gorgeous mm -hmm. and incredible. And on my rewatch, I loved it even more. And you can say that Wes Anderson is getting tired. I don't know. You, you it, it doesn't have the appeal anymore. But just to see a well-planned, intricate shot being executed with such perfection, I don't know. That just, like, gets me off. Sorry, no, not gets me off. Like that, that. Wes <laughs> Anderson gets Wilson off. Confessed on Mike. You heard it here first. <laughs> Okay, that's the last words I can say on this movie. <laughs> ben? I mean, French Dispatch. I saw this too. It was okay. It was too well made. Like, in, in a weird way, it was just too made. Mm. I want to so much love these characters, but then there's so many filters that you're watching them through. Yeah. That Wes Anderson builds up that's like, how do I access this character and love them? Like, even if they're like a cartoon, like, how do I love them when you put so many layers between me and the character? Because even the titular French Dispatch is the French Dispatch of a Kansas City newspaper. And then mm -hmm. we're going to tell a story from the writer who is then telling the story of the subject. And then the subject sometimes will tell more stories. And then the subject subjects will have more stories. <laughs> it's a Russian nesting doll of stories. I admire the intricacy of it in terms of storytelling, but it becomes for me a detriment to really loving this without reservation because then there's too much stuff here. Like I'm just here to have fun with these characters, but then too much of it is Wes having fun with working on it himself. Right. That it kind of gets in the way. But yeah, I didn't admire it though. But you gotta agree that this movie has its moments. Like, has really stellar moments. Yeah, it was very well made, honestly. Anyway, speaking of getting off, <laughs> I'm gonna talk about bad luck banging of our loony porn. <laughs> nice. Really weird. <laughs> it is only an honorable mention because I just have never seen a movie like this. Hmm. I cannot explain this and I do not want to explain this to <laughs> both of you because this is a film that I expected just a dumb sex comedy going in. Yeah. It is 
actually not that. Oh. Like, the sex stuff is a complete footnote. No, it's about authoritarianism, right? I mean, that's one thing, but it's about everything. And I can't really ex- understand why he starts out with this pornographic act specific, but this is actually a filmmaker, Radu Judah, who have made this. This is a very, very angry filmmaker. Hmm. And I don't think you can see this from the marketing of this or any of it, but this is Radu Jude extremely angry at everyone and everything and the state of the world wrapped up in a supposed sex comedy which it really isn't it is way more art house than i expected and probably the most art house thing i saw Hmm. which i did not expect it is a film with distinct parts and the second part would like kind of floored me in how i did not expect it yeah i was just like what am i watching right now so it's full of dicks (laughs) but yeah (laughs) so be warned So that's bad luck banging or loony porn. I hope both of you can watch it and like tell me what you think. Because I just, I think it's good, but I'm not sure. <laughs> but I was definitely engaged. It won the Golden Lion? It won the Golden... Bear? I want to say bear. Lion? Which mammal did it win? The Golden Bear. No, the Golden Leopard. Leopard. <laughs> this won the Golden Leopard at, at Locarno. Locarno is... The... Bear is Berlin. Lion is Venice. Lion is Venice. Hey, no, I'm wrong. It was the Golden Bear at Berlin. Golden Bear. Berlin International Film Festival. Yeah, it's a weird one. Moving on. Nice. (laughs) Time to get into some of the corners of movie watching that I mentioned at the top of the episode. Because this was not a theatrical release. This was not a release by a prominent filmmaker. But it is definitely someone to watch. Joel Haver's feature, Drowning in Potential, was a YouTube release. It's about two friends who are trying to become successful actors in Los Angeles, but are stuck in a rut and begin to question their purpose, their abilities, and their relationships. You may think you've heard this before, but trust me when I say that this is something very fresh and its mode of production is part of why that is. So Joel Haver is a YouTube sketch maker who I started watching this past year. He is a big advocate of do-it-yourself. He has a regular stable of people who he works with on his shorts and features. He's released multiple features at this point on YouTube for free. He brings a very recognizable style of his own that's quiet but not quite deadpan oddity with this genuine heart behind it. This is the most recent movie that he has released on YouTube as of this recording. I thought it was remarkably sensitive and consistent and pretty nuanced. Sort of if Cassavetes did YouTube. Hmm. This is kind of what it might be like. That's a good sell, Eli. I'm gonna check it out. Yeah, uh, this is actually looks very interesting. It's very good. Also, is this in 4-3? What the hell? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Kino confirmed. Locked in. My next pick is sort of two movies, but I'll go through them quite fast. I can talk about them too. Yeah. I can't. (laughs) This was a pretty sad year for animation. (laughs) Having movies like Encanto, which could have been as big as Frozen, open for like a week and then and then being sent to Disney Plus. Mm. Disney Plus sort of doing a lot of things to scrap theatrical animated releases. Luca too. Yeah. While focusing or allowing their Marvel releases to really shine in theaters has sort of put another nail in the coffin of a more widespread theatrical experience of all different kinds of movies. Hmm. So that's why I sort of wanted to make it a point to put some animation on the list to talk about. Because at least the two movies I'm going to talk about, Michael Rianda's The Mitchells versus The Machines and Mamoru Hosoda's Bell, were both really engaging and innovative and entertaining works that really stretch 
what ideas and what emotions and what kinds of stories can be explored in, in storytelling and what can't be done in regular real life filmmaking. The Mitchells versus Machines, it's like a family comedy about this girl named Katie who gets into film school and <laughs> her family who doesn't really understand her but wants to <laughs> and they all go on a family road trip to drop her off for college but during that road trip the robot apocalypse happens and they have to save the world. Because like Siri becomes evil. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Siri voiced by Olivia Coleman, right? Oh, oh yeah, yes, it is. Yes, yes, it was Olivia voiced Coleman. by Olivia Coleman. Good pick. I think this was such a warm and heartfelt movie that was hilarious and also I guess I also resonated with it a lot and I'm, yeah. I'm sure both of you also resonated it with a lot yes it was very energetic and fun yeah <laughs> but also being film kids who went to college for film studies yeah who me which might or might not have and are completely misunderstood yeah might or might <laughs> not have struck a rift between them and their parents and their <laughs> family by by going down an arts route but I I think this was such a blast the plot moves so fast overall really really engaging film ben do you want to say something about it first before i go in onto bell no yeah i think you hit it i think it's just a good time yeah it's like one of the most fun films to watch from last year yeah produced or directed by lord and miller i think produced produced by lord miller directed by michael Hyanda. it has a bit of like the spider-verse mm. flair in terms of animation yeah. where there's like drawings in the screen and stuff like that yeah man everything they touch is like it's gold it's gold yeah. and the second animated feature i want to talk about today Day is Bell by Mamoru Hosoda. Oh, I, I've seen quite a few Mamoru Hosoda films and I've enjoyed quite a lot of them, and this is no exception. Bell sort of follows in the trend of his other films like Summer Wars about a virtual reality world and that connection with real life and real people and real connections. And this is set in a Japan where, or in a world where this app called You, which is sort of like the now announced multi, uh, not multiverse. Metaverse. <laughs> Metaverse. Metaverse. <laughs> where it's sort of like scans your spirit or some shit and then comes up with an avatar that most resembles who you are on the inside. And it's sort of a retelling of the classic Beauty and the Beast tale through this lens. This is definitely by far, like, I'm a big anime fan, but this is by far the most beautiful animated film that's come out this year like oh man it looks so good it is so beautiful everything in the virtual reality space looks amazing yeah and the way that Hosoda can like have his camera travel through these really massive locations or yeah fake locations with animated characters but like the amount of detail that goes into these really wide shots there's so much going on and there's so many different kinds of characters not like the avatars of everyone is not all human there's some of the creatures yes and there's just like so many different kinds of characters yeah. that don't even get a second of screen time. Exactly. They're just there for like half a second. This is sort of like the peak of character animation. The music in Bell is fucking amazing. Like, yeah. honestly, okay, I was a bit cold on the general plot, but the music is so emotional on its own in a language I do not understand that oh, it so props good. up the entire movie. Yeah, but I was a bit cold on the plot, but my favorite scene in that film was the most mundane scene. Which one? <laughs> Which says a lot. My favorite scene is a scene where a girl admits to having a crush on a boy. Is it the surfboard? And he's holding a surfboard? In the train station. Yes. It is oh, the yes, yes, yes. funniest scene and it's yes. extremely mundane. <laughs> it's the least flashy scene, but it's my favorite scene because it really like felt like this 
sweet thing that happened and very reminiscent of like the kind of films I'm going to be talking about later down in this episode. <laughs> mm. I would implore everyone to check it out. It's being released by G Kids, my former employer <laughs> in the States, <laughs> but has been redoing very well in the box office for, I guess, a foreign animated film. It's doing quite well. So I'm very, I'm very happy for it. So what I'm hearing is this is a movie about VR chat. Oh, yeah. 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 Right. yeah. <laughs> And singing. It is sort of basically my senior thesis film, (laughs) but in an animated movie. (laughs) Okay. Okay, moving on. Moving on. I'm going to talk about one of the Ridley Scott movies from 2021. (laughs) The Last of Duels. No, I'm going to talk about The Last Duel. This was, I thought, a pretty good Ridley Scott flick. I'm not going to talk too much about it. It's very well done. It's kind of like a Rashomon-esque Thing about a supposed real life story that allegedly happened where two people in I don't know medieval era bicker about the other one's wife because the wife says that the friend of the husband raped her and it kind of goes through this Rashomon-esque retelling of the tale from three different perspectives not the most successful necessarily because it pushes too hard on its me too aspect not that that's a problem but it kind of loses some nuance I think when it does that it's very well acted and very well made and I think can be a very interesting conversation because the first thing I thought about when watching this movie is that it's actually really good at trying to tell you this point about men trying to control women's lives and trying to solve things through violence but there's a very interesting conversation to be had about ending a movie like that with an epic battle of intense violence Uh, didn't Nicole Holof Center write parts of the script she was on the screenplay yeah it's a really epic battle but I think it kind of doesn't fit in this film but I think generally it was well made across the board but I think a very weird one to market I think it didn't really do well at the box office because people here looking for like epic medieval film but then getting Rashomon tale about feminism and then they get confused (laughs) not that that's a bad thing but yeah I would love to have a conversation about violence in American cinema and what it is used for because I think it here is used for catharsis wrongly my first thought was I wish the violence here was treated the same way it was treated by Lynn Ramsey Lynn Ramsey Lynn Ramsey Ramsey in You Are Never Really Here because I thought that would have been the right approach Mm. when you talk about violence and reveling in the regenerative power of violence in American cinema Mm -hmm. but yeah an interesting one to watch no no love for the last Gucci (laughs) I didn't watch it not the last Gucci the the house of Gucci (laughs) yeah I did not watch the last Gucci (laughs) the last Gucci which was the best mess of a movie this year. <laughs> there are all these great tweets that are like Lady Gaga. <laughs> Lady <laughs> That's the whole tweet. Lady Gaga <laughs> Lady Gaga in interview. This is the most painful acting experience of my life. I worked for over a year. I got into character. I didn't break character for two years. Lady Gaga in House of Gucci. I make it a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny. I think her Oscar campaign, like, you can't hate on it. Like, she is giving people the entertainment, the headlines, like, the weirdest fucking headlines of the entire Oscar season, just going off and saying shit during interviews. And you can see her co-stars. There's one interview where she gives, where Salma Hayek just, like, Jim Halpert's the camera the entire time. And it's hilarious. And just because of those interviews, I say give her the Oscar. (laughs) Okay, I'll I'll let them know. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Eli. Eli, your pick. My next honorable mention was recommended to me by friend of the show, past and future guest, Sanma Wagudu. It's called Sardar Udham, directed by Shuji Sirkar. In 1940, a man from the Punjab province named Udham Singh 
assassinated Michael O'Dwyer, who was the British official responsible for the deaths of over a thousand peaceful protesters during the Jallianwala Bagh massacre in Amritsar. This is a historical biopic about the life of Singh, and it explores his motivations. It's a really fascinatingly structured story. Like, I want to take a look at this script and read it. It goes out of chronological order, and I think that listeners will find that it fits into our conversations about Jackie, about Dilse, about Bombay. It really is a new and unusual take on the question of how do you responsibly portray violent crimes against humanity and to what ends because it is pretty point blank about things Mm. i think it would be easy for that to be tasteless but it is very pointed and direct here to the point that india rejected it as the national submission to the academy awards because it was anti-British, which it very much so is. Why is that a problem? I feel like it helped them win points. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. It's interesting that it's self-censored. Really interesting thing also is that Sir Carr was mostly a comedy director, and this was his passion project years in the making. It is a very serious drama. Wow. Very little humor about it, and a great central performance to boot. So, yeah, really fascinating movie. Where did you find it, Eli? It is on Amazon Prime. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Eli. Okay, wow, we're really, like, going through a, a lot of fucking movies today. Move, move, move. Yeah, yeah, we've got lots to cover. We're, like, 40 minutes in. So, at the start of this episode, I talked about exploring directors that I didn't know before this year or didn't hadn't watched any movies. Um, and this year, uh, one of those directors was Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> Paul Verhoeven is a director that I've watched a couple films before this year, including Elle and Total Recall. And I was just like, this guy's like a little fucking weird. But (laughs) (laughs) after watching Basic Instinct and Showgirls to sort of like prep myself for Benedetta, I'm like, this guy's fucking weird (laughs) in a good way. (laughs) Will Goblin? Yeah, he's like a sick, twisted man that like makes sick, twisted movies that are not (laughs) supposed to be like taken so seriously. But like I said during our Wachowskis episode that he explores the idea of sex in so many of his movies in such a interesting and I wouldn't say provocative, but you could say provocative way because no one else dares to venture into that realm. And Benedetta is is no different. It's set in the late 17th century, and it's based on, like, a real person who, I don't know, may or not, may not have been the bride of Jesus Christ. Oh. Um, so <laughs> this woman named Benedetta joins this convent, and it's a story about her coming into power, both sexually and within the church, and the fun, fun, fun fucking hijinks that come afterwards. <laughs> so many times I was watching this movie, I saw it on the big screen and I was like, oh my, I can't believe I'm like seeing this happen right now. Like, I don't know. The the sex scenes are incredible. The the way that Virgin Ifuria carries herself the entire movie, she's, she plays Benedetta, is so fucking powerful. I would just say, check it out and expect to have a good time. All right. I will. I had an okay time. Ah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's an interesting one to watch because it's pretty out there. Ah, man. I just wish the plotting of it made more sense. I had problems with the central relationship and, like, how it just kind of begins. Mm. There was no build-up to making me invest myself in the central relationship. And then things just started kind of happening randomly. Mm-hmm. To me, that felt kind of for the sake of crazy shit, <laughs> which I'm, I guess, okay with. <laughs> And I kind of wish the sex scenes were a little bit more out there. I thought they could have gone a bit further with the way they were filming, like how 
how much further you could push. How raunchy. Yeah, like, they were, like, relatively tame considering all things considered, I think. Felt like he was pulling his punches low here. Uh. <laughs> but Ben, your name is in the title. <laughs> I know. That's why I'm sad. Ben, uh, Dada. Yappa Dada. Yappa Dada. Anyway, this is not really an honorable mention. It's basically one of the best movies of last year. Yes! <laughs> it is the year of Hamaguchi. Uh, we're going to be talking about Rusuke Hamaguchi's Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which is his three-part anthology film about women and coincidence and a little bit of magic. I really like this one. These films are so sweet, well-acted, and interesting in a way that's like hard to describe. For me, the last of the three stories is the best of them and it's just hands down much better i found the first one maybe the weakest the second one on a rewatch kind of grew on me it has a very special erotic power that <laughs> i don't want to spoil yeah but these are just really well made well written films about people you know living their lives and kind of putting their their emotions on the table mm. i really enjoyed it <laughs> yeah this year is hamaguchi's year i'm gonna say this multiple times through this episode he is on a fucking roll and i'm so glad that i discovered hamaguchi prior to this year thanks to dear friend mm. of the podcast joseph eusebio who eusebio. his senior year at wesleyan was sort of telling everyone about to watch hamaguchi movies <laughs> i saw this before drive my car and the, the moment i saw this i was like oh fuck this is the best movie of the year each of the three stories even though i also really loved the third story the most i think there's so much to take from each of these three stories mm. hamaguchi says that this was his like love letter to romero this yeah. was his romero film and he shouts specifically out Romare's 90s film, Rendezvous in Paris, which I coincidentally watched this week. I think this carries a lot more weight. Mm. I think the stories in it have more meaning, whereas Romare's are very fleeting in nature. These ones, especially the, the last two, really stick with you. Uh, there's just really something special about the way mm. Hamaguchi makes his movies and the way that he directs his actors. And the characters that he concocts are so earnest and yes. easily lovable. Yes. And I mean, sometimes he makes like somewhat villain type characters. Right. But they feel very well drawn. And you can see where they're coming from. And we will get into the other movie later. <laughs> but the fact that both movies are so wildly different in structure and I would also say tone mm. is just a testament to how versatile of a director Hamaguchi is while also knocking it mm. out of the park in just multiple modes of filmmaking. This is the film that I was kind of hinting at in terms of like, it doesn't really look that good. It almost feels like they don't have a lighting team. <laughs> <laughs> the camera jitters like crazy in this bus scene. Yeah. <laughs> Looks not good, but movie yeah. still very good. Yeah. <laughs> and when Hamaguchi talks about this movie, he, this is his cheap movie versus Drive My Car being his very expensive movie. Mm. Hot take time. Hamaguchi is a better Hong Sang Soo. I think he's doing a different thing. I would say Hamaguchi... I think they're very similar. No, I think Hamaguchi leans <laughs> very closely to Yang than Hong. For me, I'm like looking at the extended dialogue sequences. Right, right, right. I guess, yes. Yeah. Hong kind of goes towards like certain kinds of conversations or like having more people within the conversation. But I think I prefer the way that Hamaguchi's characters talk. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the difference. It's, it's more of a subjective thing. And honestly, if I were to see these people in real life, I would find them unrealistic because sometimes their emotions are so close to the surface yeah. that it's a bit unreal. But you know, it works for film because when people tell you mm. how they really feel, it causes you as a viewer to lean in because you care about humans in general. Right. Like we're programmed to care. Right. So then you lean into wanting to accept and like listen and understand where they're coming from. And that's why it works. Whereas 
With Hong, sometimes he can be a bit more cryptic, right. obtuse, and like he's trying to hide a bit more things. Right. Yeah. And that may be something you prefer, but yeah. Yeah, to each their own. Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy was the last 2021 movie that I watched. I watched it earlier this week. And there's something very composed and neat about it while also being very low key. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I want to add to what your guys are saying is this feeling of neatness. In the same way that Romero's movies are set up very perfectly and flow and execute and are their exact shape, I view each of these three segments in Wheel as a sort of shape. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I can perfectly describe what I'm seeing, but it just like <laughs> looks like a shape to me, each of these three things. And this movie is this bundle of these three shapes, oh. these polygons. I just feel it like that. I could see the way that you're seeing it, but I don't exactly see the shapes, but <laughs> I can imagine shapes forming in your head. <laughs> Thanks, I think. I'm trying to understand. I feel like I need to be a different plane of existence to understand what he's saying right now. <laughs> yeah, come to the shape plane, baby. You just need to be a different shape, Ben. <laughs> I'm the wrong shape for this comment right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, bark, bark, woof, woof. It's Power of the Dog. Woof, woof. <laughs> Tell us about Power of the Dog. Yeah. All right. How powerful is that dog? It's pretty powerful. What level? Over 9,000? <laughs> <laughs> and is he a good boy? <laughs> no, he's a bad boy. I don't know if there's too much I can say about Power of the Dog that hasn't been said elsewhere. What I want to drop in this segment about Power of the Dog, aside from saying, you know, great movie, watch it, Campion's superb and a master of the craft is I have to tell you guys about meeting Jane Campion at a screening of Power of the Dog. Wow. (laughs) My girlfriend got us into a Netflix screening of Power of the Dog, which was celebrity-studded Jeremy O'Harris interviewed Jane Campion. Before the screening began, I was very much so hemming and hawing about whether or not to go up to Campion, who was in the lobby, and say hello. Ultimately, I decided to do it, (gasps) and I went up to her and was so nervous that I... Barely spoke these jumbled <laughs> words about studying her movies in college, which I did. And my girlfriend kind of had to, like, save me. Oh. And Campion very clearly did not like the experience <laughs> and was like, oh, okay. It was just about the worst experience of meeting a celebrity I've had. So do you regret it? <laughs> like, if you, if you were given the choice to do it, would you have just chosen not to walk up? Yeah, I would not do wow. it. And actually, if you look in the credits on the Netflix release, you'll see credited as worst boy, Eli Sam. <laughs> he did not have the power of the dog. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. That's so good. <laughs> worst boy, Eli Sam. That's power of the dog. Oh. I've been meaning to check this one out because I think I would like it I just really hated the piano and I just like really like vocally hate the piano so much. Wait, what? Oh, the piano the movie. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you hate the instrument? There is a piano in Power of the Dog. Oh, there's a piano in the movie? Okay. There is okay. a piano. I do not like Jane Campion's palm door winning the piano so much. It just really irks me. Mm. But I will get around one day one day worth trying it out i do think that you'll like it wilson yeah. i think it's a very well-crafted movie i can totally understand how people are loving this like this it's on multiple critics like number one spots. yeah do you think it's gonna be our mm. best director or best picture i don't know maybe best picture could pull could pull i think shot for best director yeah wow. I, I can see it for best picture as well but i'm not sure i honestly have no idea that's the good thing about having a year that's sort of like mellow in terms of big releases is that like you have some really great directors that have sort of 
been given their due by award season and now sort of like makes way for these movies even though power of the dog is this big netflix movie that's so it's benedict cumberbatch and mm. kirsten dunce and jesse plemons who i found recently is married to kirsten dunce yeah <laughs> so cute they met on fargo yeah oh the show yeah oh they fell in love in fargo mm. let's move on yeah, my next pick is also another director that I've been exploring this year, and it is the woman of love, Mia Hansen-Love. <laughs> I really, really, really fucking loved Bergman Island. I thought it was such a great vibe movie. I don't really love Bergman that much. No, no. <laughs> Ooh, I would get so much hate. I haven't ventured that deeply into Bergman's filmography, even though some movies I've seen have been absolutely stellar. I just don't think that you could like sit with a director like Bergman for like a long period of time over multiple movies because I think that will just have detrimental effects to your mental health. <laughs> but I think Bergman Island is very far from a movie that tries to emulate Bergman in any way. Mia Hansen-Love has stated in a lot of interviews that she had visited Faro, the titular Bergman Island, and saw it as such a beautiful place that Bergman always depicts so glumly that she wanted to sort of put her own spin on Faro. Bergman Island, which is sort of is a Russian nesting doll of a plot with a director and her partner, who's also a director, which is sort of modeled after me and Hansen Love and her partner, Olivia Asayas. Ex-partner, if I'm not wrong. Ooh. Ooh. Ex-partner, Olivier Asayas. Well, I don't really like Olivier Asayas, <laughs> so that's okay. Going to Faro and having the process of writing a movie and also just coming to terms with being a, a woman in the film industry, but also just feeling unfulfilled in a lot of different ways. And this sort of transforms into a visualization or a realization of the script that she is writing in the movie, which is quite a lot of the second half of the movie. And I wasn't expecting that shift. And that was very exciting and really brought the movie to a whole nother level for me. And I, what I've found to really love about Mia Hansen Love's movies that I've watched this year is that there's such a Oh, I'm going to sound so stupid. There's such a vibe. It's such a vibe. <laughs> I think that the pacing of the scenes, the way that she films nature around the characters, as well as the sort of like high-minded conversations that they have very focused in on the subjects that the characters are very obsessed about. So Bergman Island, Vicky Creep's character in it, talks about Bergman's movies and Bergman himself. Like, she's like an expert. And I think that's just so admirable. And even though I don't like get everything that is being relayed to me. I think there's just like a sort of comfort in, in, in watching it all. And yeah, I, I just think that it was quite a quiet movie that sort of went under the radar for a lot of people. Hmm. And I would say, please watch it if you have the opportunity. I know, Ben, you, you saw Bergman Island this year as well. I am very curious about Me Hands on Love because... I mean, partially, like, a lot of directors I love nowadays have, like, a bit of a Romerian lineage. Yes. <laughs> but I find her film so difficult to grasp. Like, I understand what it's about, but it's, like, somehow the hooks are not sinking into me, even though I feel like they should. And I'm so curious as to why Mia Hansen Love's films don't do that for me. I've watched Things to Come, which I have no memory of. Hmm. And with Bourbon Island, I found it interesting, but then it was always kind of losing me in a way that I couldn't explain. But... 
like the low key nature of this makes it feel very not made, mm. which is a good thing to me. Because mm-hmm. there's something that she's trying to create a sense of reality or realism that feels authentic. That's something I'm really curious about. I think this one, I was hoping the second half would grab me, but really, I found it slightly disinteresting <laughs> or uninteresting. And then I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not fully on board this romantic train right now. Mm. And I think that's why it kind of lost me. Whereas I found the first part more interesting and I kind of wanted more out of that. Mm. But it is a very interesting experiment in the kind of film that she's making, I feel. And this is the only opportunity that I can talk about Anders Danielson Lay, who is the film world boyfriend you love to hate or hate to love this year, <laughs> being in this and also uh, the worst person in the world, and also being a real-life full-time doctor Ooh, wow shout out to you you the man <laughs> love you <laughs> well i guess you could say anders danielson lee is a hero to some people oh. <laughs> being a doctor but i just want to do a very quick mention of oscar hardy's latest film a hero it's his return to iran not gonna go too much on plot but uh, wilson has called it a classic return to form for hardy i think it's pretty good I'm a weird person for thinking it's somewhat of a comedy, but then I think now I can look at all of a Hardy films as fucked up comedies. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's a conversation for a later time when we cover <laughs> this film in a one-off episode. Mm. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. Okay. All I have to say about this movie, aside from the fact that it is, in my opinion, a return to form, I think Amir Jadidi has like such a infectious smile. Oh, yes. His smile mm. is in one corner of the movie pulling so much weight. And you'll understand because I know in classic Farhadi fashion, there is a... Shit goes down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's some real... Shit goes down. That's all you need to know. Yeah, shit goes down, but his smile is eternal. Uh, okay. <laughs> I haven't watched yet, and Ben and Wilson are being very gracious about spoilers for my precious little ears. Thank you. <laughs> well, Farhadi usually focuses on humans. And the next movie I want to bring up is Stephen Karam's The Humans. Oh, that's really good. A really organic segue right there. This is based on Karam's play, and it is about a family that gathers in their daughter's new apartment for Thanksgiving dinner, where a lot of tensions ripen and fester. It explores the space remarkably well, and it's a very dynamic adaptation of a play for the screen. Pretty fresh. It's very tense. I think that we'll find interesting comparison points between this and one of Ben's top picks, which I won't give away here. Yes. Nice. But I really found it quite compelling and upsetting. And I like these things that focus on disagreements between people and how people make each other feel worse. Mm. (laughs) It hits a similar button to Farhadi where it is demonstrating its thematic argument of how people should treat each other through negative example. Mm. And I just find that compelling to watch. Great performances too. Richard Jenkins in a very Richard Jenkins role. Mm. (laughs) I watched this based on your recommendation, Eli, and I wish I liked it more, but I found it a little bit too... I think it could have tried to just be more of a play. Mm. And I think I would have liked that more. I think I was trying a little too hard with the filming aspect of it. Mm. Even as a play, I don't know what this movie is trying to do. And... I don't know whether I was just like, it was like a big whoosh over my head and I was just not getting it. Mm. But uh, man, I found it hard to really engage and like care about the humans in this film. (laughs) (laughs) And that made it a bit difficult. But yes, definitely a very interesting comparison to one of my top three films. Mm. To me, it is taking a look at how arguments happen Mm -hmm. in a family. Maybe that's not a huge earth shattering thing, but the ways in which their shared past come to bear, their insecurities come out, 
they needle into each other, whether it's Stephen Yeun's character coming into the family, or June Squibb's grandmother who's leaving the family, and the different generations colliding between the parents and the children. Amy Schumer, by the way, really great, like really great dramatic actor showing her chops here. Just the ways in which these petty disagreements happen, and they come within an inch of fragmenting apart permanently, I find that interesting to watch, and it is something that's very well suited to the stage. I can totally see what Ben's saying about being over-directed, but I found it to be very well-crafted in how it's going about what it's focusing on, and again, particularly in how it's using the space mm. to bring out these arguments and disagreements mm. and a strong feeling of uneasiness over everything. Is it like a like a bottle episode? Like yeah, it's a chamber place? piece. Very much so. Um, there's no segue. There's lights in this movie, and my next movie <laughs> is called All Light Everywhere. Oh, jeez. <laughs> All Light Everywhere, although not really like topping my list, it was the best documentary that I saw this year. Uh, it was directed by Theo Anthony, and it's such a fascinating mm. movie that, like, even though I didn't really rate it that highly when I first watched it, the fact that I just keep on thinking about what this movie is trying to say and the way that it explores the idea that it is exploring, which is, in the most basic terms, this movie is about our eyes and what we see and vision and cameras and how visually showing things or seeing things or capturing things has a certain power when it comes to like legality in terms of like police body cameras mm. but also just a whole way of, of trying to get us to try to re-examine how we see things in the world and you're sort of led through this movie by this really beautifully omniscient narrator and I want to shout this woman out her name is Kiever Brenai who does a really fantastic job of like lulling you in, but also like really poetically explaining to us that our eyes aren't real. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need a movie to convince me that. I believe it. Nice. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> this looks really interesting. I'm looking at it right now. It is really, really good. Have you seen Theo Anthony's rat film? No, I haven't. I no, mean, like, I it's okay, but, like, also, I think, very interestingly structured yeah. for a documentary. And this sounds like almost like a visual essay type thing where it's not yeah. just going directly at a problem and, like, fracturing into different directions. Right. And he's sort of drawing connections between things that you would never think about being talked about in the same documentary, mm. let alone, like, a same conversation. So there's a lot to think about coming out of this movie and yeah. I, I I really recommend anyone to, to watch this one. Cool. Mm. Just like how you might not know where that movie is going I'm going to talk about Quova D Ida which translates to where are you going Ida? Oh my god. <laughs> we have to ax these transitions. We're going to one-up each other. <laughs> anyway, Quova D Ida which I think for some people is on their 2020 list. I think it was the international Oscar pick from Bosnia for 2020. Maybe 2021 I'm not sure. This is a film by Jasmila Zimarnik. She's a Boston filmmaker. It's set in Bosnia in July 1995. It's about the Bosnian genocide, which was like one of the big, I don't know what to call this. It was a big crime against humanity, essentially. And it is a thriller about this woman, Ida, who's trying to save her family during the lead up to many, many genocidal murders that happen hmm. uh, when she's there. And she is a interpreter at the UN. So she gets special access in the location that the film is set in, which is the mm. UN 
Roman base where people wow. are trying to get into the base and are trying to get saved. And the, the antagonist, I'm sorry, I forgot what the name of the group is, they are trying to kill all the men, mm. essentially, and loading them up on buses to go shoot them. And she's trying to save her family. And it sounds like faint praise, but this is just a very, very well-made thriller. Mm. This looks like it's basically a Hollywood film about a crisis. Uh-huh. Exceptionally well-made, very, very intense. Jasna Durichik, who plays Ida, is incredible in the role. And I don't know, I think just watch it if you're just interested in a very well-made thriller and kind of want to maybe find out more about this genre. So I want to read up about it immediately after watching it. Very, very late in the game, I knocked this off my top three of the year. Mm. But it's up there. It's one of the best made films of the year, last year. Mm. Uh, get ready for a very inappropriate transition. Where are you going, Aida? Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. <laughs> <laughs> Two best friends, Barb and Star, played by real-life best friends, Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo, take a vacation, and it gets wacky. This is my favorite comedy of the year. It's knowingly absurd. It's this smart kind of dumb and this silly but kind, full-hearted thing that I really enjoy in shows like Detroiters, Quick Plug. It is a wholly consistent world. Everything is aligned with the comedic tone and there's no need for a straight man or a wink and a nudge at the audience. It just trusts you to be in on the joke and enjoy the ride. It's a delight. Oh, I saw the trailer and I really want to watch it. The accents sound oh, it just already cracked me up so much. It's very silly. It's great. <laughs> I think I saw very few comedies last year, which I don't know. Maybe I should start watching more comedies. <laughs> it's kind of a heavy year. Yeah, it's a heavy year. We've said the phrase crimes against humanity, I think, three times now in this episode. <laughs> Whoops. I know. <laughs> yeah, let's lighten it up a little bit. Because I've watched more films than both of you, I'm just going to run a bunch of films down as recommendations, all the interesting things I saw last year. Run circles around us, Ben. Yeah, do it. Do it. Nine Days is the feature film debut of Edson Oda. It's kind of like the baby of Afterlife and Inside Out. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's actually really about souls being picked to become humans. And it has its own kind of organizing principle. It could have been better, but for the first half of it, I was really getting into it and like really invested in it. It has a rock solid cast, an insane cast for a first feature, honestly, <laughs> and for a relative unknown in terms of the in terms of the film space. Because I think Edson Oda comes from advertising. It mm. has um, Winston Duke, Benedict Wong, Zazie Beetz, wow. the three biggest roles. So like a pretty stacked cast. Has a pretty crazy ending, which I don't think it necessarily earns, but you might love it. Cool. Another one to throw out. What do we see when we look at the sky? Clouds. That reminds me of that tweet that, who is it, Val Kilmer or someone wrote where he's like, a pig can never see the sky, but sometimes I pick the pig up and I point it up so we can see the stars at night. Val. Oh, Val. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm attributing it to the wrong person. Sorry, sorry. Go, go on. This is a film by Alexander Kobritz. He's a Georgian filmmaker. Maybe the second most art house film I saw from 2021. It is pretty long, but it's very weirdly made. <laughs> it's very kind of magical realism. It's about two people who are supposed to go out on a date. But then at night, the woman is told by four friends at an intersection, a surveillance camera, a sapling, and something else, and the wind, that some someone is casting a spell on her. Oh, wow. And then the next day, they both wake up with different faces, played by different actors, and they cannot find each other. Oh, that's such a good premise. Yeah, it's such a weird premise. It has a very distant perspective on the story, but it's really honestly about this town in the middle of World Cup fever. And it has some really gorgeous scenes and like nice 
people watching bits. It almost feels like a documentary more than a film. And if I have one suggestion, if you watch it and the film tells you to close your eyes, close your eyes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. That's all I can really say. It's like this cute thing he does. Yeah, this is on movie and I think maybe Criterion Channel. I'm not sure. Quickly, there's a very small film that is from Canada called Anne at 10,000 Feet. An interesting, very short character study about a woman named Anne who goes skydiving and then changes because of it hmm. and becomes obsessed with skydiving. And it's really a character study. She has struggles with the way that she relates to people, but very well acted, almost done entirely in close-up, looks very cheaply made. That, not that that's a bad thing. Just very compelling to watch because it feels like a very well-realized character. And there's a documentary, Flea, that's animated. Some of the interview scenes might be rotoscope. I'm not very sure. That is about a refugee from... Afghanistan and his story and it is very well made and that's about all I want to say about it it's very compelling and he has a great story mm. and then last two I have Test Pattern which is the first feature of Shatara Michelle Ford which is a very simple film about a couple where the girlfriend is sexually assaulted and then they're trying to get a rape kit mm. I really appreciated this one because Unlike another film like, say, Never Rally Sometimes Always, which is also very good, which is obsessed with the journey to get the thing for Never Rally, the abortion, this one spends a lot of time with backstory and flashbacks in a way that really rounds out its characters and even within its very short runtime. And honestly, the journey is not that important. It's more about the central relationship and the kind of relationship mm. builds. It ends surprisingly ambiguous, which I thought was a pretty daring move for the kind of film that it is. And I think it's one to seek out. And then the last one is, I'm just going to throw it out there. The Father from last year was pretty good. <laughs> the, I mean, last last year was pretty good, but I only caught it in 2021. Pretty interesting use of perspective in telling a story about Anthony Hopkins' character who has dementia and can't really remember stuff. Yeah, that's my spiel. If we're doing flash recommendations, oh. the first 10 minutes of Dea Kulumbagashvili's beginning, which I believe is also a Georgian film, okay. like What Do We See When We Look at the Sky, is a shocking, really remarkable opening to a movie. I don't think you need to bother with the rest of it, not to be <laughs> <Wow>. dismissive. <laughs> but it is a daring, confident... Yeah, I'll extend that to the whole thing. It's very confidently made. Mm -hmm. Great opening. Okay, and I'm going to drop one more because I realize it's, we're not going to talk about it anywhere on the pod, and I feel like I just want to drop a pitch upon We're Seth Akul's Memoria. This was my first a pitch upon We're Seth Akul movie I've ever seen, and it was incredible. I'm a big fan of slow cinema, and I think slow cinema really works when you have actors that look like they really embody a space really well, and Tilda Swinton does that perfectly. And the journey that she takes just with her acting and her physical acting is so incredible and very much worth watching on a big screen, even though I watched it on a small screen with my face really close to the screen. <laughs> I strongly object to the exhibition method of Memoria. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're doing one theater at a time in the country, a week-long stay, and then moving on to the next city. I mean, at least in the States, that's what it, they're doing. Everywhere else, they're not doing it like that. And that makes it really exclusive, and you can't catch it in a theater, which I can tell you're supposed to see that in a theater. Yeah. I get the preciousness around making it a wholly unique one-time experience, something fleeting, but come on, let me watch the movie the way that you <laughs> want me to watch it. Yeah. Don't get in the way of that. Yeah. I find it obnoxious. That was a really big miss yeah. for Neon this year to, to decide to do it like that. I'm going to try and watch it for 2022. That'll be on that list if it appears. <laughs> And then finally, for our honorable mention segment, we would like to mention Hell is Empty, directed by Joe Schaefer, 
and produced by our close friend Adam DeSantis. It is a great little horror thriller about a young woman who ends up on an island led by a mysterious cult-like figure and his group of sister wives. They all live in a house together. Tensions rise. It's a great little thriller. And I was the props master on it. So yeah. <laughs> if you see an object used, I touched it. Nice. <laughs> Eli's hands all over the movie. Eli's hands all over the movie. <laughs> and where can you find it? As of March 1st, 2022, it'll be available on Apple TV, iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, Xbox, Vudu, and on cable nationwide in the United States. Cool. Oh my God, even on cable. <laughs> even on Vudu. <laughs> Vudu low-key is great, by the way. Okay, we're going to move fast. We've got more stuff, obligatory mentions. All right. Oh my God. <laughs> if you've come for the big splashy releases of 2021, here's where you're going to find them. All right. Okay, let's quickly go. First one. Dune, Dune, Dune. Dune, Dune, Dune. Denny Vildune. Dune Vildune. It was good. I liked it. I liked it. Saw on a big screen. I don't think I would like it if I saw on a small screen. Oscar Isaac, naked. I'm into it. Like, I don't know. I've been waiting for good sci-fi for a while, and I think this might be it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's okay. The best things about it are all Villeneuve. The scale that he achieves, the blocking, the composition, the rhythm... And to me, the absolute worst thing about it is how Hans Zimmer's score clobbers Mark Mangini's sound design. He is a truly impeccable sound designer. He has done incredible work with Villeneuve on other movies like Blade Runner 2049. And it's inexcusable that you can't tell what he's doing because of Zimmer's score. Mm. And I saw it in a great theater, Grauman's in LA, and still the music was overbearing. The music is mixed all the way up. Yeah. yeah. Whether or not you like the score itself, it's mixing is the real problem. And you can't hear what's yeah. going on yeah. with the actual diegesis. I think a video essay has put out on YouTube talking about why like you can't hear the dialogue in a lot of Tenet. I think that sort of applies to Dune because mm. all of these big, big, big budget movies are mastered and mixed for an IMAX theater. Uh, I watched it in IMAX. It was still a problem. <laughs> yeah, I also watched it in IMAX and I, I, I couldn't hear a lot of it as well. I think what was good about this was that, I mean, I'm not like a Dune hit by any measure. I have read the first Dune, but I do not remember any of it a long time ago. And the ability to condense this for a film, even if it's in two parts, is actually very well done for Dune Part 1. That he's able to get very complex like stuff in but kind of boil it down to a very simple idea of what the characters want and what the different factions want yeah and i think that makes it very approachable hmm. my girlfriend who watched it with me who hates sci-fi spaceships and everything was like yeah this is pretty good and i was like what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> i was extremely surprised when she said that i was like okay i was i thought it was good but i wasn't floored by it but the fact that she gave it a thumbs up is huge. <laughs> so you have that on your resume, Villeneuve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, also weird incest vibes. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay, next movie. A movie that I didn't get the chance to see this year and I hope to see soon. Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. You don't need to. <laughs> it's okay. Way overrated. It's just once upon a time in Hollywood and that's not a compliment from me. That's not a good thing at all. <laughs> this felt so loosey-goosey in a way that I didn't really care for it. The acting is okay, but then like the central relationship doesn't really work for me. I don't understand it. And this is a movie for people in LA. Yes. And 
since a lot of critics are from LA, I think that's why this is getting so much buzz, which I think is bullshit because if you're not from LA, so much of this is going to fly over your head. It feels like somebody Googled fats in the 70s in LA and then put them in a movie. <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of how I feel about this film. <laughs> it seems to have cast a spell on everyone because of its ability to conjure time, place, and feeling mm. tonally. And there are great scenes, but it's not the sum of its parts to me. Everyone is wowed by the feeling, but not taking a look at what's under the surface, I feel. And of course, on Twitter, the reductive thing is about the age gap, as mm -hmm. if that's the only problem with the central relationship. But I feel that that main relationship returns to a lot of beats of Gary humiliating Alana. Yeah. And ultimately, the movie affirms their relationship. Yeah. This is a problem both kind of ethically about what this relationship is and has been saying it wants to be loosey-goosey, but then it tries to tie everything up very neatly. And that ending feels like kind of an apology for not having a, something more coherent to tie it all together. The whole thing feels so cobbled together and the fact that so many shots from the trailer are not in the actual film tell me that many things were left on the table. This was something that was found in the edit and... I don't think it works. Mm. I think it wasn't completely thought through when they shot it. I'm sure there were many scenes that were completely cut. And this is like almost like a greatest hits from a film that you haven't seen. And there's no narrative propulsion for me in this. Like in terms of the way the relationship escalates, even the meet cute doesn't even work. Like they just start talking and then he asks her on a date and then it just goes. And then they're like intertwined forever from that, like whatever meeting. It's not that interesting. I don't know. I found it very difficult to find engagement. And if, it, if the buzz for it is just people's nostalgia for the valley in the 70s, then like, okay, I don't have that. This movie has nothing for me. It's all skin, no skeleton. Mm. And people may like the feel of skin, but sometimes you need a skeleton. It's mm. my take. I don't know. Okay, everyone go stream Women in Music Part 3 by Haim. Oh, good album though. Good album. <laughs> Alana's really good in this as well. She is very good. I mean, if I have to say anything, she's very good. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that it has one of the greatest Shabbat dinner scenes of all time. <laughs> I'm willing to give it that. <laughs> That's a good ending, that one. When they're outside. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> anyway, moving on to the other big thing that was holding up the industry. Oh, Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> This is what I have to say about Spider-Man. I did not watch Black Widow. Shang-Chi was very middling, although Tony Leung can still carry a fucking movie, even if that movie's still not great. <laughs> Spider-Man No Way Home was very well produced. I honestly thought it was good, and I'm very sad that it was good. I wish it was <laughs> absolutely bad, because now this is the direction that films are going to go. This is probably going to be the best version of the IP orgy that we're going to get, oh because it's all downhill from here. Like, because Spider-Man was good and successful at the same time. Like, to me, it's a very clear fork in the road that we've picked aside. And then now there's no turning back. <laughs> to quote Benjamin Yap, here I go boarding up my windows again. <laughs> <laughs> I unfortunately watched all three Marvel feature releases this year. And as someone who tries his very best to defend the Marvel Cinematic Universe because I do think that they are valid forms of entertainment that mm -hmm. have really mass appeal and I think are doing really great things with multi-movie storytelling and using movies as building blocks for larger scale events in the universe. This year felt like a setting up year, but the fact that we're sort of going back to square one or square two of what we did in previous phases 
feels like it was done before and feel I just don't want to do it again. Like, I really don't want to do it again. And I don't want to invest myself in these characters anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And if I were to rank them, Black Widow was the worst. Um, Shang-Chi was okay. And Spider-Man No Way Home was still good. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it's, it's hard for me to tell you that Spider-Man is good, but it's actually good. No, it's a good movie. It's a good... Like, I enjoyed it. The emotional beats are good. The action's, like, decent. Yeah. The way they use the nostalgia is good. And I'm like, fuck, why is this good? <laughs> and I'm, like, disappointed that I liked it. Yeah, I was that annoying shithead in your theaters clapping and <laughs> shouting whenever a new Spider-Man came in, even though I knew they were all going to be there. <laughs> Sorry. You have no horse in this race, Eli. You don't need to have a horse in this race. Yeah, well, I did see Shang-Chi. It was actually my return to movie theaters oh, okay. when there was a lull between Delta and Omicron. Tony Leung can do that to people. <laughs> you know, I think... Simu Liu was good. Aquafina was good. I like some of the charm and their relationship in particular I liked. It's just not the right ending for that movie. They did Tony Leung dirty <laughs> with the way that his character went out. But yeah. I don't know. It's fine. I had fun. I don't care enough to follow the thread of how it ties into the universe. But it was fine. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Did either of you see West Side Story? I mean, I saw it. I thought it was okay. I really want to watch West Side Story. I, I thought it was good. Like, it was well-directed. Singing's good. Let me tell you, the most unfortunate letterbox review I've written then immediately rescinded when I did one Google search. Oh no, is it about Ansel Elgort? Yes. (laughs) Because I did not know any of the things that were happening with Ansel Elgort. And I was going to say, yeah, you know what? I read your first review where you were like, Ansel Elgort's pretty good. I was going to join the defense for... And so Elgort, and then I, was, I read the things, and I was like, wait a minute. This has, like, fucked up connotations based on this. I had to delete that. Yeah. Because I honestly thought he was okay in this movie, even though <laughs> everyone said he was the weakest link. <laughs> yeah, and there's a reason because that he's the weakest link, because he's a horrible person. <laughs> but, I mean, that's got nothing to do with the performance itself. But now I understand, like, if you think he's weird in this, if you know the thing. But I didn't have context. It's why context is important, kids. Yes, context <laughs> is important. It is important. Yeah, I was like, fuck. <laughs> But honestly, Ansel Elgort was okay at this, and like he can sing. And Rachel Ziegler was very good in this. She's gonna be a star. Oh, I'm so ready for her. I'm so ready for her. <laughs> Spielberg does direct the hell out of this. I mean, I've read some stuff before comparing this with the original West Side Story, and I can see why some people are more lukewarm about it. I thought it was okay. Nothing groundbreaking, but you can see Spielberg trying his best to really like make big cinema. This is like big cinema. Big, big <laughs> Yoshi cinema. Correct. Big Yoshi. <laughs> big Yoshi cinema. Anyway. Yoshi. Let's move on. Okay. On to another film that I didn't catch this year, which was Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Lost Daughter. Also on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Easily accessible. You're welcome, Ted Sarandos. <laughs> A lot of actresses have been making directorial debuts this year. Halle Berry, Rebecca Hall, Maggie Mm -hmm. Hall. It's interesting. And The Lost Daughter is pretty good. Olivia Colman is superb as Leda, a woman who goes on a Greek vacation. But, uh uh-oh, she erroneously packs her latent maternal guilt. (laughs) Breakdown ensues. It's a movie that's most interesting when it goes unspoken. But it is pretty cheapened by this pat pop psychology it would be stronger without flashbacks and it's misleading cold open Hmm. or a more deliberate sense of why this breakdown is happening now for this character i want either like a watertight explanation or a less explanatory relationship to the character and her pathology basically it's okay i can see like 
why somebody might love this movie if they are more comfortable with how messy it is. I was hoping for something a bit less messy. Like this is throwing a lot at you. It's not trying to tell you things directly, even when it does like direct flashbacks, because it's not really trying to pin down Lita's psychology completely. Well, it's like half pinning it down. Yeah, like she's quote unquote, not the perfect woman. Like that's the whole point of her. Like she's supposed yeah. to be this woman that's not the typical woman, quote unquote. And I think people are responding to that kind of characterization that not all women want to be mothers that some women are not necessarily going to be good mothers. And that's the kind of story it's trying to tell. But I think the flashbacks really like were difficult to parse. Like once I get that kind of thesis statement, I'm like, okay, but then what's the plot here? And then it's strange because most of this film, the conflict is really just the way that Lita judges people around her. Mm. There isn't actually real action happening in the story. And I find that a bit strange. Mm. Because it's really just, she goes there, she sees a young mother that she used to be when she was younger, and then she finds some kind of similarity or like with this woman, and then they kind of strike out a very brief friendship. But that's kind of just it, and then stuff happens, and it's not really plotty. But I can see why some people might think of it more as just a character study and then like it just for that, and I think that's also a fair reading of it. Hmm. Wow. Uh, it's an interesting one to watch. It really just bounced off me. That was not the movie that I thought it was going <laughs> to... Yeah. I thought Dakota Johnson was her lost daughter. No. Okay. <laughs> That's what I thought it would be too. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay. Never no. mind. Yeah. I mean, it's based on an Elena Ferrante novel. Like, she's all about the interiority of the character. I don't know, I have not read the novel, but I can see why it's so much about Lita remembering her past. Mm. And then that's mm. shown through flashbacks. Anyway. Enough American cinema. Back to international. Moving on another movie about mothers oh yes <laughs> yes 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 a motorhead mother let's go titan julia ducarnal palm door sweeping con this year with this pretty wild pretty out there movie about a woman who who has a who, who has sex with a car and then becomes pregnant so she is a mother but she's also in some ways a son <laughs> i that's all i will say <laughs> This movie was so fucking weird. <laughs> like, what the... F like, Benedetta, nothing on this in terms of twisted and weird. This is weird. <laughs> my hot take is that it's not that weird. I think that was my qualm with it the first time around. Like, I, I thought, like, yes, the, the body horror is, like, really great. Like, I really love Julia Ducarna for that. Like, with Raw, I really enjoyed that part of it, but I also just thought everything was just very very simple it was just very simple hmm. like the plot after she gets to uh, how, how do i say it without spoiling vincent linda yeah when when they come together in the middle of the film uh, and things start the happening, core relationship that the movie is actually winds up being about yeah the direction of the story just really ends up being very normal and and, and down the line yeah imo yeah but I saw this the first time by myself, and then I saw it the second time with a group of friends that were all, like, freaking out because it was, like, well, body horror, like, times 1,000. It was, like, crazy. Everyone was screaming. And I had such a blast. And I think when you try to have fun with it, and then I guess the more hard-hitting, like, emotional and, like, things you need to think about in the outside world that she's trying to say through this movie, like have that as the afterthought instead of like what you're focusing on in the moment and like really just appreciating the horror of it all that made it very enjoyable of a watch for me i can see how with a crowd it would be a lot more fun i watched it alone and i found it to be between lanes in a way mm, i can feel that like for a movie that includes sex with a car it's not really about 
having sex with cars thematically, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, like that. The stuff with the cars kind of just drops. Yeah. Immediately yeah. after the first scene, and like I don't know what it's necessarily t- trying to tell me about the body horror. Yeah. And how that relates to cars. Yeah. Like motorized vehicles. Like mm-hmm. like with body horror, there's a very specific metaphor usually with body horror, right? If you think of just zombies, like that kind of has a metaphor as well about like humans being the scariest thing and how the monster is not necessarily a monster, it's humans. Here, like I'm not sure what the, the, the metaphor is. Yeah. It's like motherhood. It's like being a woman. I guess, but it's a bit muddled. But it's also the mechanization of the body yeah. and transgression of gender, boundaries and yeah. relationships with others. Yeah, the, I think the issue is like she's not really trying to like say something outright, yeah. but instead she's just dripping like ideas that she has about certain issues into right. different scenes hmm. that can be translated through horror. Okay. But by doing that, she's not really trying to say anything like big or massive, mm. but she is trying to play with these ideas because she wants to. And th- that's, mm. that's what interests her. Yeah. That's how I saw it. And that is also why it didn't like do enough for me the first time around. Right. Mm. It is also pretty proud of itself. The way that final title card lands. Right. I also think of the critic Adam Naiman on Letterboxd making a great point about how it seems to be very purposefully trying to push your buttons Mm -hmm. almost for the sake of it. And I think I can get behind the idea that she's splashing in a lot of different ideas, but those ideas ultimately seem to take a backseat to the idea of trying to provoke a reaction and make audience members faint and walk out and the like, which it did. So I suppose on those terms, it's successful. Yes. But I think thematically it's missing a core. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I feel that. Moving on to we love each other so much. We love each other so much. (laughs) And we're going to have a baby doll named Annette. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Leo Karachs. (laughs) was hopefully going to be the third director that I did a lot of like background prep for a release this year. But the background prep ended up being me really enjoying Holy Motors and then me really hating Pola X. (laughs) And while I didn't hate Annette, I thought Annette was very mid. Um, (laughs) Same, but... but. The butt. <laughs> but I, I do think Adam Driver's performance in it is very memorable. And I think it is yeah. one of my highlights of the year. That's the one thing that I will give um, this movie. He's so physically graceful. I can't I can't just plagiarize my letterbox review, but I will. <laughs> he's both brutal and balletic by turns. And mm. he's so compelling to watch mm. in the way that he moves his body yeah move your body for me <laughs> <laughs> i found the direction of this very compelling because there are some scenes that are like incredible to watch mm-hmm. like just the fact that annette's a doll is like it really works for me and the way that it, there's a twist at the end as well uh, but the doll really works for me and the fact that all the actors who work with the doll mm. are imbuing it with life like it really works mm-hmm. yeah the standout scene is a scene on the boat yes. which is clearly shot on the sound stage with a oh, projection of waves beautiful. but it looks incredible beautiful. and so many scenes is like using long takes where it's like weaving around characters and they're just going doing the music but all that stuff is like so well directed and it just whoops another great scene is um simon helberg when he's conducting <laughs> i'm a conductor oh that's great the timing of the camera move yeah that's so well done and i was like damn if this was just 
slightly less weird or like a little bit more accessible or weirder or like weirder <laughs> i would say go weirder yeah i don't know i found it really interesting because it's just like right on the fence with this one like whether this was like average or good like mm-hmm. right now it's maybe below average i'm not sure but <laughs> also the soundtrack slaps yeah yeah sparks i've listened to it so much this year and then now move on quick 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 <laughs> quick three more very quickly hand of god it seems like both paulo sorrentino and kenneth Brana are taking the wrong lesson from Roma and what it means to make a personal movie about your life, but that's my quick take moving on. Eek. Yeah, I don't know. I watched Anagar. It was pretty middling. Uh, it's whatever for me. Wasn't that interesting? Didn't watch it. Thought it was gay, but it's not. <laughs> no, it's very straight. <laughs> yeah. And again, incesty. So, you know. Mm. Lovely. The prettiest photography of the year for me was definitely this is not a burial it's a resurrection ben i wanted to ask what you thought about this because i think we had similar takeaways uh, it was just very dry for me like like i think some shots were really pretty but in like in general it was okay yeah i think it is doing well because of the novelty of it being a lesotho film uh, i just wish it could have done more to i think like invite you into this story that is about modernization of this village and it's just like such art house slow international cinema for me not really quite my taste i think and i i wanted to get into it but i was just slightly bored the whole time mm. unfortunately and if you think about the grief of the central character when she loses a son like that's just kind of the entire emotional tenor of the entire film mm. and you're just there the whole time and then there isn't really like a plot or emotional plot for me or it could have maybe done more in terms of like trying to rounding out the village like the cast that is mm-hmm. in the village but then you're just laser focused almost mostly on the central character and yeah it kind of bounced off me as well this is maybe an unfair take to lodge it feels very calibrated for the international festival circuit right do you know what i mean maybe yeah i mean this for some reason it reminded me also of identifying features the first time feature of fernanda valadez is that makes about a mother who is looking for her missing son it has that feel of that, that film that's about one character that's really searching for something. And so here there's a missing son and then she's trying to figure out where he is and she goes on a journey. But also there's always just stuck in this emotional tenor of just like a mother's grief or sadness and desperation. But then because it's just there, I always feel like films like these are just one thing. And that mm. is something I struggle with because if it's just one thing, then what's the story? Like it's just a premise right now. Although identifying features has an interesting twist, but even that was it was okay. Uh, <laughs> okay oh last obligatory mention some of soul good documentary interesting good music good watch if you're it's a good time <laughs> nice but it's good because it's about they kind of colloquially call it blackwood song which is like this soul music festival in new york the music is great but the great thing about it is that it contextualizes this festival in its time and what it means for black people to have had this festival for them mm. yeah it's great it's a good time now we're finally there <laughs> to talk about our top three movies of 2021. All right. Who is going to start? I guess it's me. It's you, Ben. Yeah. This is a massive one for me. Ha <laughs> I'm talking about Frank Kranz's directorial debut, Mass. He's an actor as well, but this is his first feature film. Mass is about two couples who have both lost their son in a school shooting having a conversation. It is essentially a chamber piece, similar to The Humans is the film that we were kind of hinting at. If you know me, this is a film that is right up my alley in terms of (laughs) the way that is investigating 
the central question because it spends about one and a half hours with this central question between the four actors who are all phenomenal, yes. who are all talking about this grief that they have for the loss of their sons and interrogating each other about how they feel, finding some kind of common ground and sometimes blowing up. It is so good at teasing information. It doesn't just tell you the premise straight up. You have to kind of infer as it goes along to piece together things. So I think the doling out of information is so well done for the kind of movie it is, which is basically a very long conversation. The way that investigates and structures its journey through their journeys through this processing of the grief that they are doing together is so well done. It might be slightly too written at certain points, but I'm willing to forgive it for that. And I think it could have dropped some like cinematographic gimmicks like shaky cam and stuff I think you're gonna drop all of that and just let the actor shine mm -hmm. but all in all I think this was a pretty big success in terms of like the kind of movie it was trying to be and uh, kind of the performances that Kranz gets out of these four actors Reed Burney and Dow Jason Isaacs and Martha Plimpton Martha Plimpton in particular is off the charts yes incredible mm -hmm. Mass was also one of my top favorites of the year what it does for these actors in this room when it finally gets there and it focuses on that, it's great. And also, just as this point of comparison to the humans as well. Right. If the humans is for me about how these arguments happen, Mass even digs a little bit deeper in its script because it is investigating very contemporary point of conflict in a way that is pretty incisive mm. and goes very deep. Mm. In our conversation about we need to talk about Kevin from last season. Ah, uh, yes. We talked about how the movie takes the topic of school shootings and then uses that to walk into something different about memory and guilt. Here, it is very focused on the topic that it chooses mm -hmm. and treats it with a lot of respect and seriously digs deep into it mm -hmm. in a way that I found really thoughtful and really well organized. In comparison with, we need to talk about Kevin, I think Mass is much more respectful of the thing it is touching. Yes. Because sometimes we need to talk about Kevin can be a little bit sensational. Mm -hmm. Here, it's really trying to figure out what does that mean? The aftermath of the situation, what does it mean? Yes. Mm. And how do we process this? Doesn't go for, you know, pat conclusions about gun control or about uh, mental health. It doesn't really try to give you a solution. It is more about people and how they respond to an event like this. Yes. And how they relate to each other. And this is just a firecracker of a premise. Like, it's the kind of premise I love mm. that is so simple. And the fact that you spend so long in the room with them means that he gets to look at this thing from every single side. Yep. And you're not constrained by, you know, runtime and being like, oh man, we got to move on to the next plot point and then we're not going to be able to investigate this side of the story or this perspective of the story. Here, we're going to look at every bloody side so that we can come out of it. And even if he's not going to tell me something, like I can come out of it with my own kind of feeling about how I want to think about the situation or how I think humanity can contend with something like this yeah. on an emotional level rather than a logistical or like solution-based level. Wow. That just shot it up to like really high up on my watch list. So thank you. That's my plug for maths. <laughs> nice. Definitely seek it out. Before I go into my top three, I want to cite a tweet. <laughs> what? Oh, okay. <laughs> Back in 2020, at Jordan Mallory tweeted something that I think about frequently. This was about video games, but he said, I want shorter games with worse graphics made by people who are paid more to work less, and I'm not kidding. Hmm. I agree about that, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All top three 
picks for me this year are in line with that ethos. Mm. I see. These are all American movies made on the cheap, really smart about what they want to do, really well crafted. And all three gave me new ideas and feelings that I haven't had in movies before. So my number three is The Inheritance by Ephraim Asili. It is part fiction, part documentary, part essay film, part performance film. It's about a group of Black Philadelphians who decide to live together communally and all the interpersonal challenges that come with that very ideological decision. It's lo-fi. It's down to earth. It knows exactly what it is. A lot of times you'll hear the complaint lodged against a movie, oh, it's too didactic. Mm -hmm. But The Inheritance proves that didacticism is not a slur against a movie. It's great here. I learned a lot, and this movie has an incredible sense of humor. There's no idea that is purely itself in practice, and Asili makes space for a litany of types of experiences within this movie and for his characters. And it shows the practical problems of organizing without undermining the importance of the ideals behind that organization. Tricky balancing act. The three of us were all people who did some organizing as students mm -hmm. in our university. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about our experiences. Right. So I'm very curious what you two will think about it if you should ever watch it. Yeah, yeah I'm trying to watch this at some point. Me too. Maybe next week. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's on the Criterion channel right now. Definitely seek it out. Awesome. Great. <laughs> ben and I shared two <laughs> movies in our in our top threes this year. Nice. It's pretty great because I feel like we don't really see eye to eye on things all the time, but I'm very happy that we share these two movies in common this year. These special movies. <laughs> yeah, these really special movies. So the first one, which is my number three and Ben's number two, is Mike Mills' Come On, Come On. If 20th Century Women is Mike Mills's mom movie, <laughs> Come On, Come On is Mike Mills's dad movie. <laughs> it's about Johnny, this guy. He's a radio presenter, a radio producer, a radio host, sort of like NPR, played by Joaquin Phoenix. Shout out NPR. <laughs> Shout out to NPR. And he travels to take care of his nephew after his sister has to go deal with the young boy's father who, who has mental health issues. And... This really focuses on the relationship that Joaquin Phoenix's Johnny and Woody Norman's Jesse grows in this film. And this is one of the most honest and deep explorations into children I have ever seen on film. Mm. What I really loved about one of my favorite films of all time, Edward Yang's Yi Yi, mm. is how Yang Yang, the main boy in the film, is not to me underestimated. He is a boy who can see a lot of things and he feels a lot of things and he expresses himself in a really beautiful, poetic, and really understandable way. And I think what Mike Mills explores in this movie about how incredible the youth of today is and how the way that they see the world can really change the world for the better. And this is not only through Johnny and Jesse's relationship and the conversations that they have and like the beautiful relationship that forms and is shown through this movie, but also through Johnny interviewing a lot of teens for his radio show and asking them about what they think about the future. And these segments, which I think are probably documentary. They're definitely documentary, yeah. Hmm. He just like straight up asks these kids, oh, what do you think about the future? And then they answer and 
every time they answer it just like brings me so much hope about the future even though everyone is talking about how dire the future is Mm. i don't know this past year i've been working at a school with first graders and the power in preserving these ideas of like caring for other people and and listening to your emotions Mm. and things that are really like highlighted in elementary school but sort of fade away as we get older and and we have real things like a job and like a fam like i like just other things to contend with you wash away what is really important to you as a person and your growth and i just think that come on come on just really like beautifully crystallizes that for me even though you could say that the main relationship between johnny and jesse is very tumultuous and contentious but there's (laughs) i i don't know there's there's an inexplainable beauty to it and it's fucking fantastic wow yeah this was my number two and i agree completely with everything you just said wilson this is such a precious film in terms of like its optimism and the gentleness of the way that it's handling the situations i can maybe argue maybe too gentle at some points almost like conflictless to a fault but this is the kind of movie i need (laughs) (laughs) this is like so simple like this is the kind of hangout movie i need Kids are hilarious, <laughs> and Jesse is especially hilarious. I don't know how much of this is written, but like, he just says the darndest, weirdest stuff. <laughs> uh, and I don't know, it's just like a great hangout movie in terms of just watching his uncle and his nephew hanging out and doing stuff. But I think the documentary aspect of it really floored me because I just did not expect it. And having that kind of coming up every so often in the film really elevates it because then it kind of gives it a perspective it's not just a hangout movie you know it has something to say about kids and like the future it's a really precious film i really enjoyed it like it's so good yeah yeah (laughs) oh i love it so much (laughs) i gotta watch it i i loved 20th century women i think it's better than 20th century women oh yeah i think probably for me too because i 20th century women i i I think i bounced off me but this one i think because it's simpler like more bearable it's almost spartan it's black and white you know it's just like really yeah simple yes this is it it's just about a relationship yeah and it relies a lot less on like the cultural touchstones and references that mike mills really likes to Mm. use a lot in 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 work the way that he uses it in this is really beautiful and very subtle and and just works very well with everything my second favorite movie of the year is another look at the youth of today and the forces that shape them (laughs) jane schoenbrun's we're all going to the world's fair oh this is jane schoenbrun's first feature it's about casey who is an alienated teen who takes the world's fair challenge online which involves taking an initiation and then recording vlogs of the mental changes she may or may not be experiencing. And then a stranger reaches out to her with an urgent message about her videos. This is one of the first movies that really understands not just the terror of the internet, but the inexplicability and inability to trust that comes with the internet and how the internet shapes your identity, especially as a kid. Mm. All three of us are part of the first generation that really had that happen to us. It feels eerie to watch. And it is also about dysmorphia in a way that I believe Schoenbrunn has spoken about in ways that if you're interested, I encourage you to seek out. The only thing about the ending that I'll say is that I have a theory that it is not exactly what it seems to be. Another movie where I can't really talk about the ending, but there is 
a lot going on under the hood here. Yeah, don't you fucking spoil this movie for me. <laughs> Do not spoil this for me, please. I will not. It's great. Just finally, there are movies about the internet that really reflect the experience of being very online. <laughs> I'm sick of the internet. <laughs> Get rid of Take it. Take me out. Take me out. Kill the internet. Make it like the third section in Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. No more internet communication. Yeah. <laughs> my number two is Ben's number one. Oh. And Ben, do you want to do you want to start out first? And I'll, I'll... Oh my god, my number one is a very small movie. Oh. You could say it's petite. Oh. <laughs> it's petite, mama. <laughs> Translates to Peter, my man. This is my only five star rating of the year. Oh. This is a perfect gem of a film. Celine Siama does not miss and she knows exactly what to do. <laughs> like you look at Portrait of Lady on Fire, that's like a big period film. She knows what to do with that. Here she goes, downscales a story about a girl who goes to her mother's old childhood home and then they're packing up and then she meets somebody magical and cool mm. and finds a connection. I love this kind of film that I cannot explain to you why this is so emotionally resonant. Like the situation is somewhat magical and what it means to the character and to me is something I cannot tell you. But then when the ending comes, it just feels so emotional. It is kind of like a live action Miyazaki film. Many have said that. Yeah. But it's so innocent and I don't know, I just loved it. <laughs> and I love how she does this with a very bare minimum and a lot of the films that are my favorite films of the year have been about the bare minimum. Hmm. And this is like the perfect encapsulation of doing the most by doing the least. It's not at all overbearing in its sentimentality, but it is very sentimental. Oh, definitely. And I'm saying that to praise it. It's so deeply kind and felt. Yeah. Intimate. I love Petite Maman so much. Yeah, this year was really a year for, for kids for movies. kids movies, and, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> and while Come On, Come On is about the loud but lovable kids, these are for the quiet kids. Yeah. That's not to say that there's not a lot to be like gleamed from these scenes, but so much of how you see how these kids are feeling is, is through their actions. And I think the nervousness of making a new friend, but then figuring out that this connection is so powerful and and beautiful and incredible and then furthermore the decisions that you make knowing the power that you possess was just so touching to me and it doesn't overstate its welcome at all Siyama deciding to go back to kids after Portrait of a Lady on Fire was probably one of the, like the best career decisions <laughs> that, that she could have made this year. I think it fit the moment. It fit the moment really well. Mm. Please, please go check it out. For me, Come On, Come On is like me looking at kids like an uncle. But then Petite Maman is like me going through this movie and I'm a kid again. You are the kid. Mm. Yeah. I love movies that are about aligning you with the kid's perspective. And this is one of them. It does it so well. I like that, Ben. Siyama just has like such a beautiful way of placing you within a scene. Like placing an audience within mm. a scene. And aligning you with the character and their perspective without doing anything flashy like a POV shot or whatever. But it's just what her camera lingers on, what her edit lingers on. It's sort of like watching magic is watching mm. like Siyama make movies. The kindest magic there ever was. Well, you're sick of warm embraces. <laughs> <laughs> Get ready for my number one pick of the year. Mad God. 
look, <laughs> the two of you both know that I cannot shut up about this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just be very clear right out the gate. This is a once in a generation movie. For real. Nothing like this exists. I am a lover of stop motion animation. I grew up watching the Ardman movies, Wallace and Gromit. And there's always this fanciful joy at seeing these still objects come to life and move. What Mad God proposes is what if that wholly unique and delightful art form were used for evil instead? (laughs) So Mad God is the magnum opus of special visual effects master Phil Tippett, who's responsible for filmmaking revolutions in everything from Star Wars creatures to Jurassic Park, The Matrix Revolutions, Twilight. He specializes in these fantastic creatures. He's been making Mad God for 30 years. Damn. That's insane. No joke. It's stop motion put to the most unique use I've ever seen. Mad God is about a gas mask clad soldier who journeys into a hellish landscape of abject cruelty and witnesses depravity at a scale and depth not yet put to film in this way. Wow. Stop motion is delightful because of the tactility of it. But here he puts it to the most profane and unholy depictions and creatures and acts I've seen. But because it's masterful, masterful stop motion, it retains that tiny wonder that stop motion always has. It's miraculous and sacrilegious all at once. It's deeply cynical. And it feels like it has a pretty firm grip on the American way. It is perfectly terrible. That sounds incredible. It's Antichrist in a movie. It's crazy. <laughs> and I'm not talking about Antichrist by Lars von Trier. I'm like surprised I wouldn't have pegged you for someone to put a movie like this as your number one of the year. I'm kind of surprised. You're kind of deranged, Eli. You're in your deranged era. I know. His late face. <laughs> oh, no. Late your Eli. Late face. <laughs> I'm working it right now. This is late phase. <laughs> Maybe the main takeaway is that anything stop motion is the way to pierce my heart. <laughs> but nothing like this exists. Okay, I'll watch it. Yes, I will. I will, Eli. <laughs> watch it. Tell me if I'm wrong. I'm worried that I'm like showing my card to be like a little bit of a sicko. Oh, I already knew no, that. No, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> we accept you for who you are, Eli. Oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> Okay, so the last one. Last number one pick. And this has been the critically acclaimed, the critically loved, universally, this was the other Hamaguchi of the year, Drive My Car. Bong bong. Beep, 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 beep. Yeah. Beep, beep. (laughs) Hong Kong. Beep, beep. Get out me mom's car. Vroom, vroom. What the fuck do I say about this movie? I think, oh it's my god. three hours long. It is long. <laughs> it is so long. It is like sort of like the opposite of Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. Yeah. But I was immediately sucked in. I... Oh. I how, how, ah. <laughs> there is so much... <laughs> There's really so much to talk about with this movie, how it explores sex, deceit, infidelity, pain, grief, making art. Like, I don't know. Like, I've seen this movie twice and I I think I've just barely scratched the surface. Mm. I don't even fucking know if I know what this movie is about (laughs) in actuality, at its core. I don't think I understand everything this movie is trying to say to me and even the core thing. But no movie took me 
as quickly and like held me for as long as this movie mm. this year. There is so many things Hamaguchi is doing scene to scene that I love and appreciate. And the way that he like fixates on moments, like there's a scene in this movie where characters are are having like a conversation and then they're having dinner and Hamaguchi just spends maybe like four minutes of that time to sort of like segue into a character petting a dog because <laughs> one of the characters really wants to just pet the dog. And it's sort of inexplainable, these decisions that Hamaguchi makes in terms of framing or what to cut to or what to have these characters do in these scenes that just feel so perfect and just work for that specific moment. And you can just think of every consecutive scene in this movie that there's just like these fucking special moments, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And I was just like, stop, man, like, stop. I'm going to die. Like, stop. You can't (laughs) keep on doing this. But he kept on doing it until the end of the movie. Uh, And that's, that's why I love (laughs) drive my car. Wow. So, Drive My Car is about... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, it's about a theater actor slash director. His name is... I just watched this six hours ago. I'm forgetting his name. Kafku. Kafku, yeah. And he is married to a woman named Otto. They have a relationship where she... After sex, she relates to him a story that she's thinking up in a trance-like state. Okay, so a very important relationship. But then this film is about grief. And his relationship with a driver that drives his car when he goes out to stage Uncle Vanya in a town in Hiroshima, which is far away from where he lives, which is in Tokyo, and how he and this driver form a mutual bond as they process their different kinds of grief. I Mm. just rewatched this six hours ago because I really wanted to think about how I think about this movie because I watched it in the theaters and I was like, this is so watchable, but like, I'm not sure what the fuck this is. Yeah. You know, like, what is it about? But it's so watchable. And I can tell you after watching it again, this is the most watchable three-hour film ever. (laughs) Especially for a three-hour film that's a dialogue-driven film. And I wouldn't say this is the reverse of Wheel of Fortune. This is an expansion of Wheel of Fortune. Mm. Because in Wheel of Fortune, you see how he can hold your attention for 40 minutes at a time with a lot of dialogue. Here, he's showing you five sections of 40 minutes each. Let me hold your attention for each of these sections using just dialogue. And I think he's a master at finding the cadence and rhythm of an interesting conversation. Yeah, and you sort of get a peek under the hood of how he does it through the way Kafuku does his rehearsals and Mm. the process of workshopping Uncle Vanya. Yeah, the most interesting part is that he spends so much time on the theatrical process of staging Uncle Vanya in this experimental format that he has, where he stages it such that all the actors who speak foreign languages speak their foreign language. And he literally shows you how does this guy stage this in rehearsal. Like, cause how, does, how do you do that? And he answers that question and then he shows you the final product. But it's crazy because he's using Uncle Vanya as a emotional parallel to what is happening with the story. And I think that's right. maybe the most successful use of a different story to enhance your story without it feeling shoehorned in or like pretentious. Mm. It just kind of works. And I think there's something incredible about that. 
making me feel like I need to push this up my list. It's currently at number 10. Uh, yeah. I do still think it's too long. And honestly, my least favorite parts of this are the most Murakami-esque of it. <laughs> mm. Like the part about the trance-like state of telling yes. you a story post-sex is a bit like... Post-sex, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like my favorite parts of this are actually the most mundane, simple stuff. The stuff that is most reminiscent of Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. Yeah. Like the chance encounters, the little moments of mundane magic. Like I think that's the parts that drive my car really really speak to me yeah hamaguchi is on a fucking roll house of hamaguchi yeah but i'm really impressed that the major critic circles have all kind of swarmed on this as the one to prop up really surprising i i think it's just hard to hate even if you don't understand it there's a magical power to this movie Mm. that just holds you Oh, and also my dream car. That's such a beautiful car. There's a red sab in it and it's so gorgeous. This is like the main character of the film. Yeah, the titular car. Sobs are supposed to be really not very good cars from what I know. That car's a death trap. There's definitely no airbags in it. <laughs> Look at it. Oh yeah, It's like an old car. <laughs> it's old, but he keeps it. He keeps it well. He keeps it yeah, well. but are there airbags in it? <laughs> I don't know. I would raise a child with that car. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, that wraps up our top films of 2021. Oh my god, this episode's going to be three hours long, guys. (laughs) We are going to have a really, really brief discussion about the TV that we love this year. Not even a discussion. Or we're just going to lay out some TV shows to watch and why you should watch it. Okay, The White Lotus. Mike White has made a TV show about the worst types of white rich people, and I loved it this year. (laughs) Yeah, it was good. Yeah, good writing, good performances. Happy it's coming back for season two. Ben? My first shout-out is an animation called Arcane. It's based on League of Legends, the video game weirdest recommendation for me but this is a very good video game adaptation very very strong plotting so much happens within the first season and yeah i don't know i haven't seen such good fantasy writing and like world building in a very long time so i mean it's kind of exciting hmm. that's arcanes on netflix handily my favorite show of the year is joe para talks with you recommended to me by my friend oren it's about joe who's a soft-spoken midwestern guy who loves the people around him has very specific interests and joys that he wants to share with the viewer and it is a show brimming with deep kindness and calm very much in line with what you guys were saying about petite maman and come on come on ben has this as his next one but i also want to i also want to talk about this pick pen 15 by maya erskine and anna conkle premiered its final season or final half of its season this year and it was incredible and i think it was so good (laughs) the perfect end to what is one of the best comedy shows of the past few years. I think there's so many hilarious moments, but I think there is something so truthful and beautiful about Hmm. seeing these teen girls grow up. And even though we are men, my good friend and illustrator of the show, Justina Yam, has (laughs) she loves the show. And I think the way that she was able to relate to both Maya and Anna over the past two seasons has been incredible and if you haven't seen this what the fuck are you doing go watch it go watch it yeah second it moving on <laughs> <laughs> this is like a like a mid pick but like really funny i've been watching search party mm. since season one and every time i watch a new season i'm like what the fuck is the show? Like, do I even like it? But I just kept watching it and kept watching it. I realized this is one of the most inventive comedies of recent times. 
not always a hit. I think this last season kind of went on a little too long, but this latest season, they talked about cults and millennials and like influencers and like it kind of works. <laughs> it doesn't always hit the mark, but it's really funny and the main characters are all four idiots. <laughs> They're all millennials who are like a bit full of themselves, but the world always finds their way to helping them somehow and they start a cult in season five. John Early <laughs> is so good. He's so funny. He's hilarious. And I keep telling my friend he looks like him and that's why every time he's on screen, it makes me laugh even more. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Anyway, also has a very quick guest spot from Joe Para. So Oh, <laughs> nice. He's a very rare, like, two-minute guest appearance, but yeah. City of Ghosts on Netflix, again, is a delightful, very heartfelt kids show. It's about the ghost team, a group of elementary school-age kids in Los Angeles who investigate their neighbors' interactions with the ghosts of people who have lived in Los Angeles neighborhoods. It's all about recognizing and honoring those who came before us in the spaces where we live. It's adorable conscientious. I really love the animation style. It's an intelligent and empathetic way to introduce kids to the topics of gentrification and ethnic histories in the United States. Wow. Um, Great recommend for if there are any parents listening. I'm going to talk about the only thing coming out of Marvel that I will put my stamp of approval of this year, and that is Kate Heron's first season of Loki. I think this was very, very, very well done. I never really appreciated Loki as a character in the movies, but this really, like, was a big 180 for me in in terms of his characterization and also the directions that the story took in this season and how this show sort of opened up the world for the next phase of the MCU. And I said earlier in this episode that I really appreciate when the MCU does its big moves. And I feel like Loki is a low-key big move in the MCU this year. And I want to shout out Autumn Durald, who DP'd the show, because I think this is one of the best-looking things coming out of Marvel like literally ever the low-key lighting the texture of everything i think it's really well thought out production design is pretty good for this one too very worth watching oh it's my turn (laughs) i want to shout out a very small little british i think is it british (laughs) yes it's british it's a british tv show called feel good it has two seasons six episodes each the second season came out last year saw on netflix this is a british comedy series that's created by may martin starring her it's like a romantic comedy where she falls in love with this girl named george played by charlotte ritchie and they have a relationship it's really a series that covers their relationship and it's funny but season two of the show is the only thing last year that made me cry oh wow Wow. so you only cried one time last (laughs) i mean i don't really cry when i watch stuff but like like, this thing actually made me physically cry, like, with tears in our face. I don't know why. I mean, it's a story about finding love, but it's also kind of about May's neuroses and, like, her addictions. Mm. And mm. I think it has a very interesting ending where she mm. investigates over the course of season two something that had happened to her when she was a young teenager who ran away from home. This is really good stuff and really easy to watch. It's just 12 episodes, 20 minutes each, and pretty funny. Disclaimer, I cried during Loki, so put that for Loki as well. Okay, cry. yeah, that's, that's a low bar. <laughs> <laughs> One out of how many? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the denominator. <laughs> the show that made me cry, which I didn't expect, was Love Life on HBO. Marcus Watkins is a 30-something who, over the course of a few years, finds his way from heartbreak into satisfying relationships and a general aimlessness into the person who he wants to be. It's entirely moving and satisfying. It's simple and predictable. I don't say that as a bad thing. It's clear and well done. And 
oh my god, I cannot overstate how compelling and watchable William Jackson Harper is. It's incredible. I watched this show in one day. Like, I watched all the episodes in one day. And I hadn't seen season one, nor do I plan on seeing season one after season two, because they're sort of like anthology seasons. But it was so charming, and it was so feel-good. And I don't know, I, I... really love the structure of the concept of the whole show where every episode is a different love of Marcus's life Hmm. and very easy watch the comedic relief character Christopher Powell is so funny he's also from Detroiters and I want to see him in a million more things he's really hilarious I'm gonna move on to my next pick which is HBO's Generation. This is a show that was canceled, unfortunately, after its first season, but I really implore you all to watch it. It is created by then 17-year-old Zelda Barnes and her two dads. She just wanted to make a show about real teens, uh, the teens that she wants to see on TV. I think this is heavily inspired by Scum, heavily inspired by Skins, and I think it is sort of like a worthy heir to those teen dramas Whereas, like, Euphoria sort of, like, goes the way to melodramatic end of things, I think (laughs) this has a lot of compassion and a lot of love for its characters. It has the most queer cast of kids ever seen on TV, like... I think everyone in this show, or like most of the kids, are queer, like more than 50% of them. And I think that is just really beautiful to see and Mm. I think very reflective of the kids that we see today and that are growing up today. And also shout out to Andrew on previous guest of the pod who directed two of the best episodes of that season of TV. Mm. And also a quick shout out to Naomi Osaka on Netflix, which is a show that Garrett Bradley director that I worked on and it is <laughs> woo, 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 woo. quite good. It's good. It is quite good. I think Garrett applying her sensibilities to what would regularly be a pretty down the line doc about an athlete is just really special to the, the amount of like insight and connection that she's able to make with Naomi, who has been like historically like pretty closed off to like the media and the press. Hmm. But I think you get a really good view of her life and her struggles as a number one tennis player in the world. And that's on Netflix. My next pick is Reservation Dogs, which is created by Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi. But this is really Sterling Harjo's joint. It's about indigenous teenagers in rural Oklahoma. And the story begins with one of their friends dying. And it's somewhat about their grief, but it's a comedy. And it's really kind of a hangout show where they're going to hang out and they're trying to get away and move to California. And they go up to some hijinks. It's funny and heartfelt and weird. And shout out to Zan McClarnon, who plays Officer Big, and he's really funny. He's the guy who is in plenty of films as like the Native American character that is really serious. But here he gets to be funny, and I, he's really great in this. <laughs> Playing kind of like a weird cop who is a bit of a goof. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite comedy shows that is very, very hit or miss for me, but when it hits, it's so good me too <laughs> i think you should leave tim robinson another detroiters alumnus i will leave <laughs> okay bye <laughs> please do <laughs> all i want to say is that it has one of my favorite sight gags ever where tim robinson who always plays these annoyed aggro white guys he is talking to someone and when he's ready to end the conversation he sees someone walking out a door at the very end of a long hallway and he yells hold the door hold the door hold the door at them <laughs> 
and then proceeds to nod goodbye to the person he was talking to and then turns and he walks so slowly down this long hallway after he's made someone wait to hold the door for him. It's so on the nose about everything that's terrible about people right now. It's so good. It made me laugh so hard. And Patty Harrison is so good in it as well. Shout out so to her. funny. My tables. <laughs> My tables. <laughs> okay, another comedy that we all, yeah. I think, really enjoyed this season was the other two on... HBO Max. Oh, wow. On HBO Max. Wow, all these shows on HBO. There's something There's something there. <laughs> it stars Helene York and Do Drew Traver as two siblings of a pop superstar who is younger than them. In the first season follows them as they as they come to terms with their brother's fame and then the second season their mom played by molly shannon gets a talk show and <laughs> and the second season is about them coming to terms with their mom being really famous with a lot of like sitcoms where you have like funny bits and then you have like a really like clear like emotional lesson or like a heartfelt beat at the end of it and it feels really like tacked in at the end usually for like i'm thinking about like modern family or, or some mm. other like just very normie shows <laughs> but with the other two it has a very like simple like heartfelt end to it or but i think it is so important and i think it really like hits the heart in a really beautiful way and i think the theme of molly shannon's character overworking herself the whole season struck an emotional chord with me in an otherwise really hilarious series which I think is really awesome. I would say that heart ties in so well because the series is very unsparing about the cynicism of the entertainment industry. Mm. And mm. this series is not just them coming to terms with their mom's success, but the two siblings really using their mom's success right. and their brother's success yes. to their own gain. So when it comes back to the heart that reaffirms the bonds of their family, it is in contrast to the sometimes pretty gross ways in which the two siblings use their family yeah. to their own advantage. What I like about it is, is it kind of carries over from season one is that it's not afraid to make his main characters terrible. Yeah. <laughs> when you first watched the first season, you were coming in expecting their brother Chase Dreams to be a Justin Bieber type that you know gets like his ego goes big and like you're expecting all these people to be terrible. But then the people who are the most terrible are actually these two main characters. Yeah. And Chase Dreams is such a sweet little boy. Chase their mom Dreams. is also such a sweet woman. And these two are terrible. That inversion of expectations really helps the comedy. And yes. But yeah. those two characters also form the emotional core of the series. And I like how it serializes despite being a sitcom and like has like an end goal for the season. And also shout out Streeter, who's the best character, because oh my god, guys, what you Streeter? Streeter, himbo. <laughs> okay, Smiling Friends. <laughs> yes, Smiling Friends, the Adult Swim uh, show that premiered this year about a company where the purpose of the company is to bring people happiness and make people smile, but it is cynical it is messed up balls off the wall crazy it is it's hard to describe how wild this show goes but also how consistently funny every scene is and the characters to me the big takeaway is the main characters work at this company where they have to make people smile cartoons of this ilk are supposed to make people smile but the characters are put through some really <laughs> horrible stuff and it feels like it's actually about the horrors of being a cartoon character. <laughs> oh, 
it's so funny. It's a little sick, it's, but it's funny. It is sick. It's rough for them, but I laugh through everything. I saw the first episode and I was like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't continue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Last two shows. And they're both shows that we love. Yes. After Nathan For You, there have been a lot of shows that play with reality and real people in ways that are sometimes mean. Like Nathan For You, definitely. Eric Andre show, definitely gets mean. How To With John Wilson is in the documentary lane as well, but it's a lot more observational and I find it very empathetic. So John Wilson and his team film moments of human absurdity and construct episodes around a theme pertinent to Wilson's life. I think season two of How To, it was not as like shockingly good as season one because I knew Mm -hmm. what I was expecting. Mm. And I think the last episode of season one, I think John Wilson really like honestly comes to terms with the early stages of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think nothing this season really reaches the high of that last episode, but it is still such a joyous watch. And the amount of times I'm like, how the fuck did he do it? Like, (laughs) like I still don't understand if he writes to the videos that he gets or he writes and then asks people to find the videos for him it still confuses me and i just think someone is just like yeah it's simulation of new york city (laughs) (laughs) i think this is a show that like if you have spent any time in new york at all like as a visitor or anything you understand the kind of perspective you have and the kind of people watching nature of it Mm. i feel like season one is better because season one is more organic Mm-hmm. where season two feels a bit more written because every episode there's a little set piece where he goes somewhere and it feels like they researched the funniest thing to go to where season one might be that way but feels a little bit more organic to John Wilson's journey through the episode mm. whereas here the way you get into those is he just cuts to a place whereas you get more of a journey in season one where like he meets somebody and that person introduces him to somebody and then he like finds this weird person that he has never met before whereas season two feels a bit more constructed Although I really, really liked the insights to John Wilson's actual life mm-hmm. yeah, that yeah. are already absurd, that cannot be written. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> the most alarming of is the one that's about a cappella. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm gonna leave it at that. <laughs> to me, the highlight of the season is when Wilson goes and visits an Avatar fan group. Mm. Oh. It gets really real yeah. into what that movie means to these people. It's strange and unsettling but still very honest and empathetic to these people yeah even though like when you first meet the avatar like we're talking avatar like the blue people show (laughs) not the airbenders when you first meet them the immediate reaction is haha the strange fan group yeah but then as you spend enough time with these people then you come to understand them and like really come to empathize and be on their side and like understand their fandom and like that's what I appreciate about something like this. You don't just stay with the ha-ha. You move past that. Mm-hmm. And you can still have the initial comedy, but then you can move past it and like come to some kind of human understanding. I think that's very rare. Because comedy can be very mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, speaking of mean, uh, <laughs> the last show that we're going to talk about is season three of Succession. This felt like a very different season, yes. but I think they really needed that shift. They needed these characters to like jumble up a little bit more and what resulted is i think one of the richest seasons of tv this year or if not the richest season of tv i think everyone working on the show knows that it's hot shit and Mm -hmm. is really like delivering this season 
no one is phoning in a performance this season. Everyone, all the siblings, Logan, like literally everyone in that show is giving it their all this season. And I think Jesse Armstrong, the directions that he takes some characters this season, I really loved. I really loved Tom this season and I really loved Shiv this season. Like I think both of them really clinched it this season for me. I like Succession. I never know what's going on. (laughs) I don't know if this is other people's experience of Succession, but like I never know what's going on. I just know what is happening. What do you mean you never know what's going on? Sometimes I feel like I don't understand the logistics of what they're talking about. Okay. Yeah. I like, I know the relationships and I know when big shit happens, but then when we're getting there, I'm like, yeah, I'm done. I don't know what this is. I don't know who's taking over what. I forget characters (laughs) from previous seasons that they're all talking about. The first episode of Succession is like, oh, who's that guy? Oh, who's that guy? (laughs) And I'm talking about, like, I don't know how they relate. Yeah, that's me. But it still works. And I think that's the charm of Succession. Although my kind of take on Succession is that it's like a weird thing where like they never show you the event. They always show you the consequence. Yeah, it's always mm-hmm. aftermath. And I think I think that sometimes gives me whiplash. I'm like, it confuses. I don't know what is the thing that's happening. Right. Because they go straight to consequence and then the fallout. That's what they're more interested in. But yeah, it's a good time. <laughs> I started watching Succession this year. So I watched all three seasons this year. And maybe that's part of why I'm starting to feel a little tired of it. Mm. When I watch an episode, because there is all this information and moving parts under the surface, it is soap opera-y to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. I don't say this derogatorily, Mm -hmm. that there are a lot of shifting alliances and hurt feelings and things moving back and forth. And on top of that, Season three is very purposefully about some wheel spinning, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Kendall has broken open the case. He's blown the whistle. And now it's a slow and painful wind down to realizing that he can't really deliver on that. (sighs) Yeah, that was rough. That was so rough to watch this season. It's rough. It's effective. It's doing what it wants to do. At the same time, I feel a little weary by the end of the third season. Mm. It's still insanely watchable. I agree. I feel like I've eaten too much by the end of the season. I can see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's why it's tough when it's always consequence and you don't get to see the other thing or like the other side or like what's happening to the company. No one wins. <laughs> yeah. Because you're always watching the same characters, which I mean, that seems normal for a TV show, but you never see them not talking to each other. You never see them doing their other thing, mm-hmm. like doing their job. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think that's the thing that makes it tiresome because you're just seeing the same people in the room in different configurations insulting each other like that's why every episode of succession looks the same because it's just the same people wearing the same shit talking to each other right yeah i can't tell you what happens this season like episode one or ten like honestly like like just people talking in rooms but it's so juicy it's juicy juicy. yeah i agree i feel like it's like as an actor like you would kill to be on that show like that's i feel like they're just having so much fun with these characters yeah this is a criticism that i heard about the show and it has kind of duck in my ribs a little bit everyone has the same snappy insulting way of talking right and usually when every character talks the same way and it's that snappiness it's not the most effective character Mm. dialogue writing Mm. Mm -hmm. but it is also very snappy and fun it's like the sorkin critique no i mean there's a little bit of a variation i guess with like the deliveries and stuff but yeah i mean i think of tom and uh, like he it's not really snappy he's like weird (laughs) and like floral and like strange especially when he comes Mm. to greg oh my god and greg is the farthest from snappy greg is the farthest from snappy that's true maybe it's all the delivery yeah maybe but it's true they maybe insult each other too much (laughs) if it is to be said so it be 
So it is. <laughs> so it is. And so it is. That's TV for 2021. This is going to be three-hour episode. Oh, God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We're okay. trying to hit the runtime of Drive My Car. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We are. We are. Okay. So, guys, I think this was a really fruitful year for our movie and TV watching. And mm-hmm. to bring in the new year of our moving watching and also deep cut do we have any res revel res- we have any <laughs> do we have any movie watching resolutions or things to expect from the podcast next year this year this, this year. year for me in terms of film watching i'm trying to watch fewer movies from the year that's my resolution i'm trying to do less i mean i would say i'm kind of disappointed with 2021 so i'm just trying to maybe pick the movies i want to watch this year and mm. i actually just picked the ones that i in interested in. i mean i did kind of do that last year but i think last year i hit more things that were like less important i guess to me and i could have missed them but it's always so difficult because you never know if the movie you pass over is amazing yeah <laughs> but i don't know this is my new resolution it's okay if i miss a good movie <laughs> mm. yeah because <laughs> i'm just trying to watch more stuff from like older films and like deeper dives into like directors i don't know about me too that's also what i'm gonna try to do this year is watch less new releases and I'm really going to try to make a dent in Wiseman and Obayashi. Those are the two directors that I'm saying right now that I'm going to try to make a really big dent in their filmographies. <laughs> like both of you, one of my takeaways from the year is don't trust the hype mm-hmm. and trust the people who know you and know your taste and recommend you things. Some of my favorite things that I watched this year were because of recommendations from close friends, including both of you. Mm. And my 2021 movie watching was heavily stacked towards December and January. We're recording this at the very end of January. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> I got a little sick of movies by the end of it. So either to space it out a little bit more or to go further into the past fill in some big gaps that I have in my movie watching knowledge. I haven't seen a Tarkovsky yet. That feels like a shameful admission that I'd like to change. (laughs) Oh, I want to read more this year. Mm. Oh, I didn't read enough this year. I love reading. There's so many Don DeLillo adaptations coming out. I'm just starting to really get into reading Don DeLillo. I'm in White Noise right now. One of my favorite books of all time is his book, The Body Artist. So, yeah, more reading, less watching. Nice. I don't read enough. (laughs) I don't read at all. (laughs) (laughs) We're turning deep cut into paper cut. I am very slowly getting through the first of the um, Neapolitan trilogy of Mm. the Ferrante quadrology. Not trilogy, it's quadrology. It's the one that my brilliant friend is based on, but I'm moving through it very slowly. Hmm. Well, that's another year. We've tied a very neat tidy bow on 2021 put it in the ground (laughs) what can listeners expect from deep cut in 2022 we will single-handedly end this pandemic oh i am putting it that's a promise (laughs) that is a promise to you our listeners we will eradicate this virus this year nice (laughs) i think we've all chosen who we're going to be covering for season three right i have not (laughs) oh I need to think about this, but I think we know what we're going to start with. Oh, yes. Yeah, we're going to start with our big boy, our big boy. (laughs) I'm ready. All the leaves are brown (laughs) and the sky is gray. That's a good teaser. If you know, you know. If you know, you know. (laughs) If you don't know, you're listening to the wrong podcast. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Do not gatekeep people. (laughs) Not a lot of people listen to us anyways. (laughs) Let's try not to (laughs) alienate more people. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. Keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod. Join our growing community on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful, beautiful artwork. Thank you. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I am Eli. Take care. And we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next, next year time. this year no it's this year this year <laughs> next 2022 year. is this year <laughs> next month yeah technicality next week i don't know okay love y'all Mwah.